We just go along for the ride, enjoying the body's experience of its own breathing. And you let the waves of the breath calm your mind, calm your body. And you don't even have to create calm. Or you just let your mind and body come together very gently and gradually. Slowly we just let go into reality. Come out of the tangle of our situation and stories. We're just here. Just this breath. Just this moment. five minutes more just enjoying your body's breath enjoying this room good company and knowing that you've already done the hardest part by showing up by getting here Now it's let go, let be.
Welcome, everyone, to Spirit Rock. My name is Romy. I'm so happy to welcome you all this welcome you all here this morning. It's so lovely and relaxing in here. Um, I have a couple of announcements, but I'm curious who's new to Spirit Rock? Looks like there's a lot of new faces today. Lovely. Welcome to have you. So you people in the back, you're welcome to sit close. You get more Dharma points. If you sit close. And you know, the person with the most Dharma points becomes enlightened. Um, First of all, I want to thank all of the volunteers. They're wearing name tags. We set the room this morning and did other lovely things like checked you in. So if you'd like to be part of the volunteer sangha, you can let us know at the breaks and we can give you information about it. CEs, all of the CE people have signed in, congratulations. So now all you have to do is finish your survey back and front, give it to us at end of day, and we'll give you your certificate. Let's skip to lunchtime. It's a beautiful day, it'll be a little warm outside, so we'll set up some tables for you in the building. But it's lovely to eat in the meadow across the way. There's picnic benches there. There are also ticks out there, so when you come back in the building, please mindfully check around your legs, make sure to leave the ticks outside. If you're thinking, oops, I forgot my lunch, uh, Woodacre Deli is across Sir Francis Drake, and I can give you directions. Mm, There's a self-serve bookstore. We have Howie's book there, along with many other items for, Jack calls it, mindful shopping. It's now time to turn off our cell phones. I always look at the teacher, but Howie looks confident that his cell phone is either off or not in the room. Excellent. Um, assisted hearing devices. If you would like one, they're in the back, and you can pick one up there. Um, we're hap- you can bring in liquids into this building, but we like you to have them covered. It looks like you're... You've done that. You'll get a survey uh, this afternoon to your email address at home. And if you have time to fill it out, we look at each and every suggestion and your feedback. We do look at those closely. Okay, Howie, how are you doing here? We're doing great. Looks, looks, oh, yeah, it doesn't, look matter. Ready. it doesn't matter what these things do. <laughs> Howie is uh, one of our very regular and wonderful teachers. There's a picture of you in the um, Gratitude Hut. At lunchtime, you're welcome to walk up here to the Gratitude Hut. Mm-hmm. It's up. Uh, I'm going to run up and put one up there right now. <laughs> Please check out the Gratitude Hut where we have pictures of our teachers, some of them when they were monastics, and they're really very moving, lovely pictures. Uh, the Gratitude Hut, you're welcome to visit there. But if you go a little further, you'll see a wood gate, and it says residential retreatants only. Someone asks you not to go up to the upper retreat. They've been in silence for over a week, and we like to respect their silence. Okay. Good morning, and thank you, Howie Cohn, for being here. We're looking forward to a lovely day. Thanks. Thank you, Romy. I always feel a very warm welcome from Romy, and it sets me up. And when, when a day or in any program here has uh, good management and friendly volunteers, it makes my job easier. So 
Thank you for volunteering. Thank you, Romy, for all you do. Um, I'm excited to be with you today. This is one of my favorite topics. Oh, Romy, I need a list of the learning objectives today. For the, but I think I can do it without. But I, just just so that I'm that we are true to our word, that we will provide the support for you. Um, but I'm I'm happy to be here and happy to uh, share this topic. I also have just, we will be weaving through the day lots of periods of sitting meditation. It's not just going to be didactic, you know, just information. It's going to really be sitting and walking and some dialoguing and, but really a day of silence, a day for you and me to tap into the uh, direct experience of my, of yourselves and myself, which is uh, which is not so easily put into words. It's, it can't really be described in language. We use language and we try to uh, describe ourselves. We think about ourselves a lot, uh, but whatever we think about ourselves is not really the direct experience. And it, and it's precisely this difference. Thank you this difference between what we actually experience as ourselves and the view of ourselves that plays through our mind that creates a lot of conflict for us, that, that some having confusion about, about uh, what we are, who we are, uh, is probably the number one cause of stress for us because so much of our stress is based on our view of ourselves. And it's often... Uh, our view of ourselves is different. Um, like even right now as you're sitting here, there's just the experience of sitting. And, and if we reduced it to just simple reality, there would, be, there would be six experiences that are happening. And they're happening over and over. And what are those six experiences? Life is pretty simple in real time. It's seeing hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. And if we're aware of, of what's happening, one of those six experiences, life is really simple, and we are simple. We are not so complicated. But we all f- also, as you're sitting here, having those six experiences, you may start to have a little internal uh, reaction. Liking or disliking. You may start that creates a little internal pressure and then you may start thinking about the day, about yourself in the day. You might think from time to time how it's going and you know what's, and really mostly how it relates to you. And it's within this, when we live within this world of how it relates to me, we become farther and farther removed from the simple reality of what's going on. And we will not in any way today or hopefully in your practice ever get rid of those views of yourself or the views of how things are going. That's not our purpose. That wasn't the Buddha's purpose to wipe your mind clean 
and just experience life as it is. He wanted you to see the difference between life as it is and the story that plays through your mind, the view of yourself that plays through your mind, which we call ego, identity, identity view. The Buddha called it Sakaya Ditti, self-view. To see the difference is liberating. And the whole point is liberation. It's not liberation from having any kind of identity. It is liberation from um, of falling into mistaking uh, a mistaken case of identity. Um, mistakenly uh, limiting yourself to whatever story is playing through your mind or any view that you have of yourself. And we all know that our views of ourselves, the sense of identity, it changes. Changes with age. It changes with, with the circumstances we're in. Today, just for example, I am what my friend Bonnie Durand calls, I'm the sage on the stage. I'm the guru. But then, and that's identity of guru, and I may, because people are often nice to me when I'm in this role, <laughs> not always, but I can feel a little bit of sense of, I'm defined right now by my role, and, and I can feel either good or not so good about what I'm doing. But nevertheless, in general, it's, a, it's an identity that is circumstantial, that it's based on the conditions that I'm in. But as you know, the sage on the stage uh, is when I'm at Spirit Rock, then I go home. And then I'm a dad to an almost 16-year-old daughter. She could care less. And my wife, the last thing she wants at home is a guru. <laughs> so I... <laughs> sorry. When I think of her, the, the, she's mastered the eye roll. You know, because it's... Because um, it's an occupational hazard. It, that we tend to stick to these identities, especially when you practice them or when you're in that condition and people, people keep seeing you that way, it becomes a kind of shroud. But we do this over and over again in our life uh, based on sometimes how we're, how we're seen by others, based on experiences that we had when we were very young and sometimes painful experiences. And it's very easy if we do not have uh, what we call apperception or awareness, mindfulness. If we're not aware of what our mind is doing, relating to those different identities as opposed to relating from them. Does that make sense to you? If, I'm, if I really think I'm the, the guru, I, I'll just kind of crumble when somebody says, you're no guru. Or when I go home. But if, I know, if I'm relating to that and I can see whatever goes along with that, it just becomes another part of the experience of being human. Humans, by definition, the definition of birth is the leading cause of identities. Leading cause of ego. 
And we will explore the nature of ego, how it actually, what it tends to adhere to or attach to or how it tends to, how we tend to fall into that case of mistaken identity, how we tend to get caught up in it and how it is that we begin to awaken so that we can not get rid of it again, that we can start to relate to it and that we especially relate to, relate to ourselves as we get to know our different views of ourselves, uh, just the sense of identity, relate to it, uh, one, with understanding that it's just part of life, and two, with tremendous, this is my, my pet experience, my pet um, uh, wish for you, is that you relate to the ups and downs and fragility that comes with identity, that you relate to it with kindness and mercy. Because in truth, we can't help ourselves from feeling vulnerable to the, um, the insubstantiality of any story about ourselves, any idea. Any, anything that we identify with will become, or create an identity around, will become a source of insecurity. That's just the name of the game of being human. And so the typical, the more, the more chronic response to our human condition and fragility and the, in, the insubstantiality of any identity, the typical response is to, what, what are they? Try harder. Judge ourselves. Fall into a, a, a more extreme view that there's something wrong something wrong with me. Any of you ever have that view? So it's interesting, that view is a kind of pervasive view, something's wrong. So you'll notice, right now, in real time, where, you have, where you're just a little bit more in touch with your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue, your body. Real time, and this is why we meditate. And in real time, you're not consulting your memory. Okay? Do you find anything wrong with yourself right now if you don't consult your memory? Do you find that one who is not good enough, not worthy, not measuring up? That's another big preoccupation with the identity view is that we're often measuring. We'll get into that a little bit more today as well. But notice when you're just present. Where is the I often ask, where's the evidence for the, the way you usually think about yourself and your life? So we often take our life situation, which is a, a narrative about ourselves, which is a wonderful thing to be able to have, and, and it, it explains a lot about us, but it can never capture 
what you actually are in real time. And because of that, because of the missed direct experience of yourself, that it's not reducible to a characterization or a story. Because you miss that and live so much in the identity, uh, your nervous system becomes dysregulated. Your body freezes, your heart gets tight, and you stop enjoying the only life that you have, which is the one we're sitting in right this moment. Did you know that your entire life, not your entire life story or situation, but your entire life is right here now? This is the only living reality, just sitting with me. Welcome. That's the only reality. Everything else is in the realm of imagination. And when we really connect with life, right where it connects with us, something in us, not immediately, we may get scared at first, like, really? But something in us will relax, and it's why we love meditation, because it, it cuts through the, the views of ourselves. It, cut, it, it at least helps us see that each unfolding moment, I'm not really um, definable by whatever I've been telling myself. I'm just here. I'm just aware. I'm just conscious. How do you feel about that? Anybody have any comments? Where's our microphone? Where's our, our mic? We'll get a few comments before we start sitting. Volunteers with the mics. Anybody willing to say, how do you feel about having your life just here today, at least? With the, oh, please. Uh, yeah, I agree. And that's certainly uh, my growing experience with this. My question is, operating in a world that insists you have an identity. People are well, looking... You, you do have, I mean, you have lots of identities. Yeah, but people want to fix you in that. Well, and that's, that's, yeah. So do. I'm just saying, you know, it's, but you're it's not a fixable. bit of a tight You just have to know inwardly you're not fixable. I don't mean that as a double, you know, <laughs> multiple yeah. levels of meaning. I mean, I mean that you have to know inwardly that you're not defined by people's uh, view of you. Okay. Uh, and right. so, yeah, of course, that's how we got to feel, uh, how we got to think that we were a certain way is by the way people relate to us or expect us to be. Uh, but that's what we begin to liberate ourselves from. This is all about liberation. It's not about fixing. It's not about getting rid of. It's about freeing ourselves from the confusion of being bound up with uh, one example is other people's opinions of us. I don't know how many of you watched uh, as you were in the maybe 25 years ago ABC News had the the national medical correspondent for ABC News was uh, Nancy Snyderman, and she wrote a book about her life as a, a woman in the in the ABC world and news, and and she said that one mantra got her through, became her savior, and that mantra was, "Other people's opinions of me are none of my business." <laughs> Just something to practice a little bit, please. Hi, Howie. 
Um, pretty much it was the same thing. I think the second I arrive here, I'm like, oh, this is perfect. This is just, let me stay here forever. <laughs> and then the other retreat, which starts at five o'clock today, is, you know, a whole mess. And um, yeah, just saying it out that it's kind of like, a, like I, everything I hear, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And then it's like, how do I take that into the other retreat? What's the other retreat? Real life. Oh. Uh. Yeah. The, oh, this isn't real life. Like, huh? uh, the, the, they say the other, the second part of the retreat, sorry. The second part of the, the retreat. End of the day long. How do you take this? How do you take this, yeah. Well, I've been, I have a little practice in this. Just, uh, I've been, just so, some of you may not know me from Adam and, I'm just whatever, but I am one of the I am one of the original teachers at Spirit Rock. I've been leading classes and retreats for 35 years as of the end of this year, and practicing meditation for almost 50. And uh, I have found, and you shouldn't believe me; you should just check it out for yourself. I have found that the effect of meditation in my life is that I don't need to be busy thinking about myself and who I am and what my roles and identities are. I can actually, most of my life, most of my life, I can simply be present, doing what I'm doing when I'm doing it. And that's when I'm happiest, of course. And then when it's needed, I, I defend a position or I take, uh, I, I take on a role, or I put down a role. Identity can be picked up and put down. That's how life works. You don't have to be carrying it around like one of my teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, says, like a conceptions bag and weighing you down. It's like a whole bag of, of ideas. You don't have to carry it around. You can be, as you go through your life, you can be what one teacher called just um, empty, open, comfortable. And then when needed, what's your name? I forgot. Or, or. or right, exactly. When you, when you need to name yourself, of course, or. And you have orness. <laughs> perfect, perfect orness. Um, but you don't keep recalling, I'm or, I'm or, I'm or, I'm or, I'm or, I'm or. I have to... Just be present. So we don't need as much um, preoccupation with identity as we usually think. Um, but, so it's a matter of, of gaining more comfort and confidence in just being um, not who you are, but more being as you are. Who you are is more of an idea. Again, check it out right now, just being as you are right now. Not, how, not your idea of yourself, but the direct experience. And that simple direct experience is always available, and it basically accompanies you every instant, but we're usually preoccupied with something else. So that's what we wake up to here. And then we start noticing how much our mind wants to jump into a, a building project, the, the construction project of me, 
or the breaking down process or the comparing or the analyzing or interpreting or judging. Um, And what do we do with that? We notice it. That becomes part, as I said before, that becomes part of the, the field of awareness. So all day today, we won't, hope you don't uh, think of meditation as deleting, deleting anything. But it's, it's increasingly sensing what our experience is when we're not um, caught up in past and future and identity. And then to be able to, with that sense of settledness, and, and more continuous attention to what's happening in our mind and body moment to moment, then we can start noticing, oh, there's my mind creating me as the greatest guru on earth. There's the, oh, there's the insecure me. There's the, the fragility, there's the comparing. I feel uh, like I, maybe now I'm not this, I'm not as good as I should be. We just notice that. Those are just ideas. How do you feel when you hear that you um, that you are not defined by your identities? Is that relieving at all? Is it scary? Because the question may come, "What am I then?" Please. <clears throat> Just one of the feelings I'm having is relief. To relief. That, that uh, oh, what a what a relief! <laughs> it just it, in a, a re- remembering um, a teacher uh, saying one time, and I still think of this: is yeah, in this retreat, you're just um, row number two, blob row two, blob number four. <laughs> I just am thinking about that and what a strange relief that feels like. It doesn't sort of make sense. Some part of my mind wants to hold on to some identity, but when I can drop into that, it's just like... Great. And and it's nice to hear you say that, yeah, we we can pick them up again and put them on when necessary, take Mm. them off. Thank you. Now, from for here on out, you are row two, blob four. <laughs> you are limited to that, defined by that. You are nothing else to me. <laughs> Please, right here in the middle. Okay, I get the part. <laughs> this is the, the that okay means I I'm doubting something. <laughs> right, I got the part about put it close to your mouth. Not so. attached to my identity, but like yesterday, I spent the day here, and I go home, and immediately I'm triggered by what's coming at me from the identities others are putting on me. Mm. Like the minute I'm in the house and. So I guess my question is how, I know through practice, but in the immediate um, maintaining 
what we learn and feel and experience here, as he was saying, in the outside world, but more that other people are holding the past, holding us there. And then, of course, I trigger into upset about that because mm. I don't, I know that's not me, but it's just this conflict of them imposing what they think my identity is and past, all the past history. Right. I just appreciate the pain of that for every one of us in one form or another. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, all I, all I do is I want to run away. I'm out of here. I'm gone. Right. I'll see you. So the, I won't see you. So, right. this, so yeah. the strategy, so again, the, the teachings don't, don't get, a, get rid of those um, kind... The teachings never suggest that you, should, you can keep running from people who see you a certain way. Uh, I'll tell you a story from the, from the old sutras about that methodology, which you, you do out of love. Get me out of here! But, it's, but that kind of reaction to other people's projections or things that may show up in your life that are unpleasant or deflating or hard to bear, uh, the suffering comes from how you react. And so all the attention, all the attention, um, shouldn't go into how terrible a reactor I am and then building a new identity as somebody who can't deal with these things. But all the attention needs to go on the pain that gets triggered. The feeling of deflation, the feeling of, of um, anger, a feeling of frustration. You take your attention off of what the other person says, unless you literally have to, have to protect your life. That's, you know, it's never about just always, sometimes we have to actually uh, get, you know, tell somebody to stop. But in general, if we could just see that that person's saying what they're saying and we're getting triggered, they're not causing that. That is our own habitual reaction. And that's what mindfulness begins to erase. That's what loving kindness begins to soften is our own, uh, our own reactive hearts. And so the, the most important thing that you can do at that moment is get your attention off of them and onto your, onto your pain and do whatever you need to do to soothe and soften, gladden. You know, I, I would go right to a heart rub. A heart rub. Say, ouch. I go to a dog walk. Perfect. There you go. See, now that's, that's skillful. That's what we call skillful means. Great. Great. And then when the, there's an old Native American idea, save your anger till the next day. I told them, I'm not going to talk to you when I come home today. And I'm not going to go to dinner with you or eat dinner. Or I just need peace today when I come home. Like... Like I know that I'm probably going to react. Right. It's really hard to to shift when I feel whole. I know my inner self, but my outer identity gets laid on me. That I. Yeah. It. Well, it's my identity. That yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that over time you want to you want to take care and soothe, and then when you need to talk to that person, you don't tell them what they did wrong. You tell them what they did, what they said, that they can agree they did and they said, 
and then you tell about what happened to you. And when they really get how painful that is for you to feel misperceived, to feel attacked, to feel blamed, to feel reduced to some kind of identity, maybe that would impact them to see how, how much pain, that, uh, how unable you are to stay um, easeful when they talk to you that way. And again, that's not blaming, that's just saying, this is what happens for me. And people can usually hear that more than you shouldn't talk to me that way, it's your fault, and you know, and then we end up getting into a conflict. Thank you. So I think in order for this any of the what I've said so far to take root in our life, it, we at least in this teaching, uh, we fortify ourselves by doing what the Buddha said was the one most important thing that you can do in order to establish the, the ground of being able to, uh, to be resilient, to accommodate what people say, what your own mind says, to be able to notice it rather than get caught up in it. What is that one thing that the Buddha said is the most important thing that you can do? Mindfulness of the body. Putting your mind in your body and your body in your mind. And so that will require that you, for this time, that you put down your pens and for us to sit. So I wanted to start by sharing the good news that you are literally only a split second, a half breath away from stepping completely out of your um, identity views, your views of yourself that are so tormenting, or the other people's views of you that, that get internalized and become tormenting. You're only a moment from that. And that that moment is any moment that you just connect with life right where it's connecting with you. And so again, we try to find some enjoyment at connecting with life where it connects with us. And so we want to find a posture that's relatively comfortable and relaxed. And to whatever degree that we, in spite of there always being some th- some. There's always going to be some unpleasantness that shows up in our body. But by and large, we can start to feel a little bit more settled in our body. And to the degree that we're not settled into our body and really easeful inhabiting our body to some degree, it's very hard for us to, um, to not be increasingly reactive to what people say or what we say to ourselves. So shifting from side to side and front to back till you find at least for now the most uh, balanced and easeful place where you can let your body go, let it be.
And just as an expression of our wish for safety in this world, just check in to see if we can feel first safe with ourselves for a moment. And wish for to feel safe with each other today. Tap into that place in us that wants to be happy. The happiness of peace, well-being. Part of us that wants to feel well and easeful. We try try to tap into that natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of our nature when we're not looking for it elsewhere. Just having your mind in the same location of your body, your body will start to unwind a little. Start to be a little bit more harmony between your mind and your body. What can enhance that is if your attention is very close to the feeling of your body sitting. One of the ways to do that is to feel your rear on the cushion. Staying long enough so that the idea of cushion and chair give way, give those ideas give way to just the feeling of it. And the same with the hands and the lips. The eyelids until the ideas of these give way to the feeling of contact. just sensing the whole body staying long enough so that the idea of it gives way to the aliveness the feeling of vibration pulsing Then once again, enjoying the body's experience of its own breathing. Ego or identity is not needed for the body to breathe. It's not an egoic event, it's just the body breathing. Just enjoy that. Take delight in this life breath. It's pretty impersonal. That's why we like it. Just this breath, just this moment, wherever you feel it. 
if the breath feels too difficult to feel as a home base or a primary anchor, just use your hands. Just feel your hands touching. Rest your attention there. Just gather our attention to these points of contact, breath, hands, and we stay there as long as it lasts without strain or tension. And inevitably, you'll They'll get lost in thought. That happens. That's not very personal either. And when you become aware of it, it's really important that you don't make it personal. You just enjoy being awake again. Very gently, like putting a puppy back on paper, you put your attention back in your body. Breath, hands. Just this moment.
sinking into the experience of your body breathing, sticking to it, or the hands touching, whatever they're touching, spreading out all around it, not missing any part of that experience.
matter how many times you're visited by a story of yourself, a thought of yourself, or get lost in it, just to recognize that the story of yourself is not yourself. It's just an idea. And you wake up to what your mind is doing. Just enjoy that moment of noticing. For the purpose of developing a harmony of mind and body and stability, we just place our attention back in our body so that our mind and body come together. Hands or breath. Seeing the difference between our direct experience and the ideas of ourselves. Just this moment, just this breath, or touch. Nothing to get rid of, nothing to become, just being aware of your body. Occasionally the stories that your mind tells.
So one of the helpful reflections for me over the years from the the teachings of James J. Audubon that's helped me to experience the the different um, the difference between that simple experience of my mind and my body and my body and my mind on one hand and and the difference between that and then what I experience when I'm caught up in the view of myself that's playing in my mind or the, the stories of myself which are, it's not the same and what, the way James J. Audubon put it for those of you who haven't heard it before, he says, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. Basing the sense of what you are, who you are, on present evidence, not on the past, not on a narrative completely. Although, who shows up in this room? That unique expression of life that you are depends on past. Depends on where you came from. Who your, who your family was. What your culture was. What your religion. What your race. Everything formed what shows up here. And so we never want to throw out our, our narrative, the story of ourselves. Our, the, exp, the expression of that is right here in full color, each of us. Not one of us could be any different than the way we are, given everything that has caused us this is an understanding the interbeing, the interdependence between what sits here and, and all that made you what you are. Understanding that is another way of understanding the selflessness of what you are. That you're made up of all of these, these non-personal elements of, as I mentioned, culture and community and pain, you know, the cultural pain and everything has formed us. And so you are an expression of life that is not independent from those conditions that brought you into being. And Does that make sense? And one of the ways that we that our mind through what the Buddha called wrong view one of the ways that we um, fall into um, a mistaken perception of ourselves a mistaken sense of our identity is somehow thinking that we are separate from all of those causes that we are to blame for our existence when we, really there is not one element of our mind and body that exists independently from what made us. And um, B. 
because of that sense of ourselves, this is where our identity comes in, our sense of ourselves as separate, apart from the flow of causes and conditions, because of our perception of ourselves as separate, we tend to blame ourselves for the way we are. We tend to view ourselves as they talk about it in the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu text. We think of ourselves as the one wave that has arisen on the ocean, but somehow it's gotten separated from the ocean. The one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean, which is a a complete absurdity, the wave is never separate from the ocean. That wave is immersed in the very thing that it is that it thinks it's separate from, just as you are. And because of our identity, the sense of ego as separate, we suffer much more than we should. Self-blame and judgment. Now this is not to say that you as an individual are not responsible for the actions that you engage in. Your thoughts, your words, your deeds. But blame, this is where why forgiveness is such a central part of the Buddha Dharma, is that in some ways, we, given the, the forces that are, that are affecting us, as my friend Wes Nisker says, who teaches here, is a spirit rock teacher, he says, you are not your fault. You can use that as a mantra too. I am not my fault. But... In spite of that, in spite of all of those non-personal causes that make you a unique individual, that view of yourself that plays through your mind is still just a narrative. Even though it's so much a part of what allows us to know each other and to hear our histories and share our stories, that's a, it's a beautiful thing. I'd love to hear each person's story here. But that story of you is the field guidebook. The one that sits here, the living experience of yourself, not reducible to a story. As, who was it, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, who you are, shout so loudly, I can't hear what you say. So we want to, in our practice of meditation, we want to really feel what we are. And let the shout of our existence, our aliveness, our those six experiences in full display, to feel ourselves directly, and then be able to see that story that is part of our part of what made us part of our conditioning, but does not. But it, in some ways, because so much of our conditioning is. Uh, is the conditioning that comes from confusion and ignorance. You know, we talk about the way other people project onto us, etc., view us. Uh, those, um, a lot of the things that we think about ourselves and say about ourselves are just not true. They're distorted. And so we, it's really a very central part of the of practice of awakening is to see the difference between the bird and the field guidebook. 
So one of the ways that we also understand the selflessness of things is, is through understanding how we, how, we, um, how we came to be the way we are. You know, having a wide view of ourselves. I, I actually brought along with me I was meeting with somebody the other day. Just a, I won't. I try not to take too much time with this story, but this was a person who is um, who came to see me, who is Irani, Irani, American citizen, but born in Iran and had to leave uh, with the fall of the Shah and the revolution in in Iran, and came here. This was the land of opportunity, etc. and for him and in this in the diaspora of the Iranis after the the fall of the Shah and became much more of a of a uh, theocracy and uh, fundamentalist culture and and uh, and clearly during this what we'll call the the era of um, Islamophobia um, and just the xenophobia and intolerance that is seems to be emblematic of this I, you know without getting into politics it's it's so painful incredibly painful but this person is starting has increasingly felt unsafe here uh, and felt like what initially felt like a place of belonging it's not feeling like a place of belonging. So he's kind of longing for that feeling of belonging. Came to meet with me. And, but, I, you know, I just mostly listened. But then he told me that he recently, following the thread of history from his family, he bought a, a telescope. And he set it up on his balcony and he started at the night sky, started looking at the night sky. And widened his view. And the more he looked and the more he was compelled to look and to see, the more he felt as though he was not caught up so much in the, the seeking of identity in this group or that group but he felt this natural sense of identity and the sense of belonging with the, the cosmos. And something in his heart just gladdened because he came out of the tangle of his sense of separation and isolation. And of course, everyone will find their own methodology, but, but the practice of awakening is, is to begin to see through all the ways that we make ourselves separate, even those ones that are so natural, the ones that come through our through the condition of our of our um, our past, that somewhere we we have to kind of widen our scope. Just to end this little phase with a, a little poem. And I wondered when I would try to slip it in, but it kind of, this is a kind of cutting through poem of the identity view and, the, and reality. This is from a poem from a fellow named David Budbill. 
It's called Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right. Every day climbing up the steep sides, sliding back. Over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. <laughs> so part of the coming out of the tangle of our, of our view of ourselves, called identity or ego, point of view, is the, with the thinning of that, with the, with the lessening of that in the simple moments of being present, we start to tune into each other. We start to tune into our relationship with the family of things. So one of the ways that we try to connect with life, where it connects with us, and just let our our view widen, is uh, that we alternate our sitting practice, which helps us just connect with life, come out of any view and just feel our sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch, breath. We continue by, um, by the very portable practice of walking. And one of the ways that we can, um, one of the ways that we can taste a widening view is remembering that this body that we feel when we walk is, and this is very central to the Buddha's uh, study of identity. Because the number one identity for most of us is identity with what? Body. Body identity. Number one identity. But we, when we feel our bodies, we feel our bodies from a, from a, um, a distance often. And so often what we're feeling is more of an idea of our body. More of the picture of it. The image of it. What we connect with when we feel our steps, when we, we just walk, know we're walking, we connect with the elemental experience of the body, which is earth, air, fire, water. Earth, hardness, heaviness, water, cohesion. And of course, earth depends on cohesion, otherwise we just turn to dust. And, and fire, temperature, and of course, water depends on fire. Otherwise, you know, if there's too much fire, then the, 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 it dries up. If too little fire, it, uh, it water freezes. So finding that, that feeling of, of moisture, cohesion, earth heaviness, and then um, air. Air regulates the fire. Air is the vibration, uh, the wind, we feel all of that. We feel ourselves uh, in nature, as nature. It's not as though we're going to take a walk in nature. We are nature. 
And as being nature, we don't exist independently apart everything, uh, everything that made us. It's another way that we cut through the identity as, uh, of separateness. And that is the heart of the liberation of the Buddha, is seeing through the illusion of separateness. That separate I. And one of the ways that it's most stark that it shows up is that strong identity with the body as being separate. So let's do a little walking, feeling those elements. And the way we, we do this, we don't just take a walk because then, then we end up in the, one of the other areas that, that um, creates identity. That's We get caught in going somewhere. Here we walk to and fro and what we realize when we walk to and fro is that we're not going anywhere. The whole point is to arrive in the step we're taking. So you can do inside the back of the hall here for, because it's so warm out, uh, under the trees, wherever you can find them, in the parking lots, in the hallways here, upstairs. But just walk and know you're walking. Just connect with nature as it expresses itself in your body. And we'll just do it for 15 or 20 minutes. Then we'll sit again and you'll, maybe you'll just feel more and more that, that connection with life um, as opposed to that sense of separateness that comes with identity. So enjoy the walking. Just feel your body. Every time your mind drifts off, come back to your steps. Come back to nature. And for anyone, for the first few minutes, anyone that just wants to check in with me one-on-one, I'll just sit here for a few minutes and... And we will um, we'll sit again in about 20 minutes. So 15 minutes of walking, another five minutes for a transition, and then we'll sit.
just one last little reading to put, um, just to add a slightly different perspective to, I guess you could call it the foolishness of, of our small identities and our addiction to, um, to power and uh, setting ourselves apart from the flow of life. And it incorporates, again, the opening to the heavens. This is uh, the, the heavens in reverse. And this is a commentary on a photograph that was taken of the Earth from, space, from the Voyager spacecraft, which was a photograph from uh, 6 billion kilometers or 3.7 billion miles away from the Earth. And in the photograph, it's called the pale blue dot. I just like reflecting on that. Uh, In the photograph, Earth's apparent size is less than a pixel. The planet appears as a tiny dot against the vastness of space among bands of sunlight reflected by the camera. During a public lecture at Cornell University in 1994, Carl Sagan presented the image to the audience and shared his reflections on the deeper meaning behind the idea of the pale blue dot. Quote, We succeeded in taking that picture from deep space, and if you look at it, you see a dot. That's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives. The aggregate of all our joys and sufferings thousands of confident religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in in the vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that so that in glory and in triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by inhabitants of one corner of the dot on scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner of the dot. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great evolving cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all our vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Having said all that, there's a little more to it. But but there are beings who have... um, have seen through the illusions that uh, that separate ourselves out from that 
vast cosmic openness. And uh, one of those was uh, the Buddha and uh, others could be you. Uh, because what the Buddha suggested that, uh, that every single one of us has within us that capacity to awaken. He said, if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. You can, you can actually see through the illusion of your own separateness. You can see that which causes you stress and causes the whole, universe, you know, the whole world stress that's act- actively happening right now. And you at least can play your part in not participating in the delusion of, of our separateness and the delusion and confusion that comes that, that uh, makes us think that we are uh, ultimately distinguishable from each other. We are relatively distinguishable. And if we could only honor our differences and come out of the tangle of all our hatreds and biases, uh, we'd have a better world. But one of the ways we see through see through the illusions of ourselves, we start to see through the illusion of each other. Each of us is, is creating that sense of separate. Really, we're all, we're all in this together, sharing this pale blue dot. And... So this rem- remembering that this isn't just to learn some new coping skills. It's to, keep, it's to help us to really announce uh, our, um, our, the, the fundamental mystery of our existence and our, our place in connection with everything else. It's not just to become the great yogi or the great Buddha, uh, but to awaken. Remember the Buddha was awake. He wasn't a Buddhist. He was awake. And what that wakefulness was that he realized that there was nothing in his mind and body, in his roles, there's nothing that could really capture that was absolutely one thing all the time except that intrinsic or primordial wakefulness that lives in us, that sometimes called awareness, sometimes called Buddha nature, sometimes called consciousness, sometimes called the unconditioned, the unborn. But all the words can never capture that essential uh, nature of our being that's, that's free from the very beginning. But we walk around bound up in our, our views and in a small sense of ourselves. And then we, in the at least in our version of the larger sense, we, we create so many divisions. We fight with each other. We fight with ourselves. So this really is about ending war with ourselves, first of all, and then, and then it's really hard to be at war with others when you understand how innocently we all come to our confusion. That's why the, the title is Loving the House That Ego Built, because that's the only response once you see how how we've all been entrapped in a kind of confusion about ourselves. Here's one last thing and then we'll sit. You must deal with this sense of I as separate if you want to be free. Notice it in operation and at peace, how it starts and when it ceases. Remember, after your last thought has stopped and before the next one begins? Where's identity?
what it wants, how it gets it, until you see clearly and understand fully. After all, all the yogas and meditation, whatever their source and character, have only one aim, to save you from the calamity of separate existence, of being a meaningless dot in a vast and beautiful picture. This is Nisargadat, Advaita Vedanta teacher. You suffer because you have alienated yourself from reality. And you seek an escape from this alienation. You cannot, you cannot escape from your own obsessions. You can only cease nursing them. That's relate to them instead of from them. It is because the sense of I am so and so is false. It's not an ultimate reality that it wants to continue. Reality does not need to continue. Knowing itself to be indestructible, that's reality, it's, you know, it's the word we use. Knowing itself to be indestructible, it is indifferent to the destruction, the arising and passing of forms and expressions. To strengthen and stabilize the sense of I'm somebody. This is what we're all busy doing. We're bu- we tend to be busy doing it even with meditation. I'm going to be, I'm a good meditator, I'm a better meditator, I'm a bad meditator. All that is just, we can notice that. That's what identity, that's what ideas of ourselves do. We, we will take anything. We have no pride, really. We'll, we have no shame, I should say. We'll take anything and build an identity. Even if we found that we were completely empty of everything, that we're not describable, we'd say, my emptiness is bigger than yours. <laughs> anyway, I, wanted, I was editorializing. Here we go, back. To strengthen and stabilize the I am so-and-so, we do all sorts of things, all in vain. For the I am is built and rebuilt moment to moment. It's insubstantial. It is unceasing work, and the only radical solution is to see through this separative sense of I'm such and such a person. Once and for all, being remains. But not self-being. I'm so-and-so. See through it. One of the ways that we see through it is to study. Study the way that, um, that identity gets created. And as I said just before you went to walk, one of the ways that identity gets uh, most created is the by, by the way that, um, that our mind, in the way it's conditioned, it reacts to what we call sense impressions or sense experiences. Remember, I said the totality of your life is what? Six things. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. And all those, five, those six experiences, five physical senses, one mental sense, those, each one of those little experiences that we have is, in order to experience one of those, we need what, are, what the Buddha called five... Um, what are called khandas or skandhas, or they're called the five heaps, or the five aggregates. There's, it's, each moment's experience is, is the aggregate of five different things happening. And it's only because we view it from such a, in such a, we view ourselves so superficially that we mistakenly take those five things to be myself. If you, don't, if you don't 
grok this, that's okay. I'm just going to say it anyway. But really, in, in every moment of experience, depending on, regardless of the sense, mental or five physical senses, there is, with, the, with each moment, there's a contact. That's where a sense and a sense experience, like you need the, the sense base, which is the ear, and you need that, that gong that produces, so that's sense contact. And each one of those moments, that moment of contact, contact, what immediately rises with it is feeling, is a f- sensation, is a kind of a little reaction. And that re- little reaction or that feeling that comes with every single experience you'll ever have it is what's called, um, it's called Vedana or feeling tone, not feeling and emotions. But there's contact and feeling, and feeling is really one of three things. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, sometimes called neutral. So in that moment of hearing, there's contact, there's feeling. Now, feeling is based on conditioning. So for some that, that may have been, they may have heard a gong, you may have heard a gong just before you were scolded as a child. And so it has an unpleasant association. Or it reminds you of being in a monastery and it has a, it has a pleasant conditioning. It's, it produces a pleasant feeling. So there's contact, feeling, and then the third thing that happens in every instant is what's called perception. And perception is based on memory. And perception is also based on the proximity of how we're noticing something. So based on memory, we know that's a gong. That's a gong. Without perception, it's just hearing, contact. We know it's a gong. And, you know, if we're really just close to to that experience that we're, we get closer and closer to just hearing. And then we can see the difference between what's really happening, which is just hearing, to then perception, that's a gong. And then the, third, the fourth thing, so we've got contact, we've got feeling, we've got perception, and then we have what's called mental formation. Mental formation may be what we're thinking about it, or how we're reacting to it, whether or not we are... uh, And one of the mental factors, one of the mental formations is mindfulness. Mindfulness is then... Mindfulness is the clear knowing that that's happening. When mindfulness isn't there, you can just really get caught up in other mental formations like your thoughts about it, you don't like it or you like it or you, it reminds you of this or that and it's the, it's the flights of fantasy. But more often than not, when mindfulness isn't pl- present, our mind is filling that little area called mental formations with, um, with likes and dislikes and reactions. Uh, aversion, grasping, wanting more of it. When mindfulness is present as a mental formation, as part of that experience, when, when mindfulness rises up to notice hearing and there's clear comprehension of that, that's considered a very wholesome uh, mental formation. So there, it, 
one is able to just hear what's being heard and hear that it comes and it fades away. No suffering at all, no identity at all, just the, the most the two things that are very debilitating in our conditioning as, as humans. Hope you're still with me. How many have I lost? Two things are really debilitating. One is when mindfulness doesn't rise up, when mindfulness is not present for that experience of the sound. Because then all hell can break loose. And what often breaks loose, but is also very strongly habitual, is that the mental formation that rises with that experience is what the Buddha called avidya, otherwise known as ignorance or wrong view. That whole experience of hearing, wrong view, it takes that experience and makes it, turns it into me and mine. And our mind says, as part of the mental formation, I am hearing that sound. So what gets added to the simple experience of hearing is the personalizing of it. It's me, it's mine. And then once me and mine gets, gets, um, gets entrenched and mindfulness may not rise up to notice that, with the me and mine, me and mine always wants to secure itself. It always wants to... And so it's going to want to um, have some kind of narrative that keeps reinforcing the sense that I'm having this sound and I like this sound and, or I don't like the sound and he just rang the bell too early and, or he, he waited forever. I thought that bell, you know, that bell was the secret to my happiness. When he rang it, I felt so much... Re- you know, it's our, our mind goes into the whole story of personalizing it. When really it was just... In that moment, there was just five things. And I'll get to the fifth one. Contact, feeling, perception, mental formation. And then the fifth skanda that happens in every experience is consciousness. And consciousness in this, this sense is the consciousness that arises with hearing. That where in order for us to know that it's a sound or what's been heard, that it's that there has been a sound. There had to be consciousness. There may not have been mindfulness, but then if somebody said, even if you weren't mindful of the moment the, the bell rang and you weren't clearly comprehended, if somebody asked you if the bell rang, something in you would know it because there was consciousness there. Like it's the same thing that lets you know, lets you tell somebody that you had a good night's sleep. You may not have been very mindful while you were sleeping, but you know you, you had deep sleep or you slept well because there was consciousness. So conscious, but the consciousness that hears a sound is not the same consciousness that hears, that smells a smell or tastes a taste. That consciousness is actually flickering on and off, moment by moment. So, it, so those five things that flick, flicker on and off every moment, there's nowhere in those five experiences that you can say there's a self. But because of wrong view, avidya, that one... the that one mental formation, because of wrong view, the sense of myself existing independently apart from everything, that identity view gets, gets, um, gets activated. 
And why does it get activated? What really reinforces that is because of getting back to perception. Perception based on memory is also based on how close you're observing something. So when we observe something from a distance, for example, your body as it sits here, First of all, the idea your body is wrong view. Of course, it's not, conventionally speaking, it's true. It's your body, not my body. But meditatively, we look below that. And you see this body is its own body. It's, it's its own process. It doesn't belong to anyone. You can't find a self in this body, but don't, don't believe me. Just take it for right now. But what really, what the, what really uh, turns... Um, The reason that this body is taken to be my body is because it's being observed from a great distance. It's like I'm seeing you from a distance and you look like a solid entity. And I think of myself sometimes as an entity existing apart from other entities. But if I get really close to this body, and this is what we do meditatively, this is what scientists do when they put bodies under a microscope, When you turn up the power on your own observing power or on a microscope and you keep going more deeply into what we call myself or my body, you don't even find a body. You just find changing, rapidly changing conditions, atoms, molecules. Uh, I actually brought, this is even more superficial than what you would find in a in a um, under a microscope, but I mean, but it's still useful for our for our study to see through the illusion of our of our um, I- strong identity with the body. Just a little bit of factoids. I didn't realize I was going to give a talk right now, but here I, here we are. So there'll be still plenty of time to meditate. Little factoid: human bi- humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every human has a unique tongue print there's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail a cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour sneezes can travel 100 miles per hour it takes 17 muscles to smile 43 to frown takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line Most people blink about 25 times a minute, about 20,000 times a day. The average person speaks about 31,500 words per day. Every breath we inhale, billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit into an ice cube the string would stretch 80 billion miles. That is from the earth to the sun and back 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria which are born and die in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour about 1.5 pounds per year. By 70, 
an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your home are made from dead skin. (laughs) The body makes new stomach lining every five days. Body makes a new liver every six weeks. Body replaces new head hair every two to five years. Body replaces new eyebrows that consist of 450 hairs every three to five months. Body grows new skin once a month. Body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells of your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to this sentence. So in other words, in any given moment, parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? So I read all this because we're now we're going to, you could say, a little bit more closely contemplate the body. Uh, because that is where the really strongest identity view gets entrenched. And we won't contemplate it in any kind of uh, cerebral way. We'll just feel it. We'll continue as, as you find your meditative posture again. We'll continue to let our, uh, give ourselves a, a primary anchor, just a home base, so that we begin, to, so that we develop a real essential part of the we de- develop a real essential part of what allows us to see more clearly. What allows us to see more clearly is to have our mind and body in harmony, to have more continuity of attention. And that that creates a certain observing power. It's like, it's how we create our own internal microscope as we develop the conditions that lead to the arising of concentration along with our mindfulness. So we give ourselves a home base to create the conditions for a calm abiding and some focus. And so once again we come back to just the general sitting body and then find our breaths or find whatever your primary anchor is. It could be your hands. Let our eyes close softly. We let our hands or our breath be the center of our meditation. And even with the breath itself, we can realize what's called realize the Dharma, where we can understand that the breath is selfless. It's breathing itself. Breathing happens, but no one who breathes And uh, that's also a great opportunity to notice when the identity with the breath starts arising and you start noticing the controlling it or directing it. And that's just ego. That's identity. As much as possible, we just let the body breathe. Just let the feelings of our hands be felt. Sensations being known. 
And then in this sitting, when a sound becomes stronger than this experience of breathing, we just notice hearing. Let the sound fade and come back to our hands or our breath. As well, when another sensation in the body becomes stronger than the breath, whatever its flavor, aching or burning, stabbing or itching or tingling, we let the breath recede and we let our attention rest on that sensation that's being felt. And we notice what its quality is. And we notice what happens to it. What happens to the sensation when it's felt? Itching. What happens to itch when it's felt? What happens to aching when it's felt? We notice the changing nature of the sensations, the natural behavior of the sensations. And when they're no longer predominant or compelling or faded away, we come back to our breath, our hands. Being gracious and welcoming of any sensation that becomes stronger than the breath. No need to look for them, just settle back into the moment, feel the body, feel the breath. Another condition of mind, condition of body calls your attention. Everything welcome. Soft mind. Alert. Just this moment.
One of the first things we notice when our mind is in our body and our body is in our mind that we don't experience, we don't feel body, we feel sensation. Feel the elements. Earth, air, fire, water. Expressed as hardness, heaviness, cohesion, temperature, vibration, wind. Experiencing life just as it is. Not as we imagine.
matter how many times you realize you've been lost in thought, it's natural, it's not personal, it happens by itself, it's just thoughts come and mindfulness may not show up to recognize them. And so when mindfulness doesn't show up, the mind is bent toward creating a kind of artificial reality. But then mindfulness comes. That's why we should celebrate or appreciate its re-arising. Then we can see clearly and all the gentleness of placing a puppy back on paper, we gently put our mind back in our body. Keep sensing ourselves intimately, directly, without consulting the past and thoughts. Just feeling that experience of this moment, this body, this breath, this touch. Selves as we are not as we imagine.
when you hear the sound of the gong, just be aware of hearing, bare experience. As the sound fades, may feel the impulse to open the eyes. Notice that impulse. And then notice the opening of the eyes and notice the arising of outer sight, seeing, and then notice any movements that your body makes so that there's some noticing of the presently arising experience. Meditation continues. So these little details of experience of the gong ringing and the opening of the eyes, as one practices, if you were to do a longer practice period where your moment-to-moment attention gets very strong, you can begin to see that, that when that sound of the gong goes, that the sound fades, the sound is heard, selfless. Hearing is happening, but no one who hears. Sound fades, and then there's a mental impulse to open the eyes. That mental impulse, without that mental impulse, the eyes won't open. But that mental impulse is selfless. It comes. And then the opening of the eyes is another experience. is selfless. They depend on one another. And when you see really microscopically or very detailed, you, that's one of the first insights that one has in what's called the progress of insight, That's one of the first insights into the selflessness of the process of our life. Again, it never denies that your your individuality is needed to be able to have any of this understanding. It never denies you're you're you, I'm me. But when we look more closely, what we take to be myself is actually made up of all these non-personal things that are happening. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, that's okay. We do have a few minutes now to check in about uh, just how you're settling into this day. Anything, any questions about the meditation, what you're noticing in the meditation, any questions about anything that's been set up to this point, uh, questions, concerns, descriptions, please, right here. The so when you get tired... When meditation makes you tired, do you resist the urge, or what? What I don't. Th- I don't think meditation makes you tired unless you're making excess, excessive effort. I think meditation sometimes reveals that you are tired. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I'm exhausted, <laughs> <laughs> and I have been. And I, I. I don't know. You know, when you're in that state, do you resist that, or do you just let yourself nap? 
It's a great question. <laughs> it's funny, this question just came up on the Tuesday night group in the city. And I was telling them that the person who was asking that, that sometimes sleep is, they, they call it the poor person's nirvana. You know, because it's very healing, etc. But for when we're practicing meditation, we want to train in meditation, we want to have, the only time we'll ever learn anything is if we're, if we have some measure of wakefulness. And in order for the wakefulness to be um, effective, the, the wakefulness has to be balanced with tranquility, gladness, soft, you know, you just have to be settled and wakeful. And very often what happens in a context like this, and especially at the first part of a day-long or a retreat, is that you may have the tranquility, but you don't have the energy to match it. So when you have high tranquility and low energy, we, the way we joke here, because this has been founded by um, the center, had a lot of Jewish people who were... They, it says that we often joke that it looks like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem in the, in the meditation <laughs> hall. So the... Or the Western Wall of the... You know, so whatever way you want to think about it. But um, when you, when you um, have that kind of sinking mind or dullness, you do, the first thing you do is you try to arouse a little energy. Now sometimes it is an insight into your, your vital energy is diminished. And so that may be insight number one today, call it insight meditation, is that, that this is a fruit of some kind of causal action. And in, in understanding the causes and conditions, you see it's not personal so much. It's related to, it could be systemic causes. I, would, we just, I just came back from leading a retreat up north of the border on an island where the lifestyle is chilled. It's quieter. And, and it becomes really apparent that when you live in the Bay Area, there's this kind of trance all connected to materialism, to consumption, to busyness, to, you know, how are you doing? Busy. How was your week? Good, busy. You know, it's the, there's a the culture here. So that's systemic. It's not personal. It's not to blame. But that's a lot of what people find is they're deeply exhausted and their vital energy is diminished. So if you find that over and over, you need to sleep more. Just, you know, answer your question. But in the meantime, while you're here, you do, we, we provide some antidotes that, um, that hopefully will, and one of them would be to stand up. Just a little tiny extra energy to hold your body up will help balance the tranquility that's, that comes from being together with other people, quiet, safer, uh, not much to do. Uh, you just need a little extra energy. The other part of the... Um, one of the functions of many functions of the walking meditation is it helps build energy. It helps arouse energy. It's not a break at all. It's really part of building a kind of continuity, the power of mind that, that starts to wake your energy up. Um, but while we're sitting, uh, either take a precise posture, open the eyes really wide to take in as much light just for a moment. Do it all very mindfully or stand up some of the other traditional antidotes are pull on your ears and said that the, that the 
monks, they used to ask the monks to sit on the edge of a well if they were having a lot of dull. <laughs> Something like that. But you're really on... How many, how, how many of you felt a little dullness during this? Don't take it personally. Well said. You just that that was the the main point for our you know for this topic. Don't take it personally, but it is personal in that I didn't feel particularly dull today, and uh, and so and because I was leading a retreat last week, and there may be an insidious level of fatigue, but there's a lot of energy that builds up from sharing and from being in a place that's a little bit more nurturing. Uh, so those are the conditions, and so you, we don't want to turn it into self-blame either. I say that not just to you, but to everyone. Please, wait for the, the microphone, if you don't mind, please. Thanks for your patience. What about boredom? So I'm focusing on my breath, my hands, and it's like, okay... Let's get something interesting going on here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what Fritz Perls, the founder of Gestalt Therapy, says boredom comes from lack of attention. So your attention, the first place that we look is uh, getting back to the thing on perception, is that uh, we get bored when our attention is superficial. And mindfulness, as the way we train it, it's not just, I know what I'm doing when I'm doing it. It's not just a skill that I bring to the workplace. Mindfulness, when it's trained, it has three qualities to it. It's direct, really face-to-face. It's non-superficial. It's like getting really close, sink into it. And then the third part is sustain your attention. It's not just a glance at what's happening. You really sustain. Sometimes, if you get closer and you sustain it, it comes alive. And the most ordinary thing becomes extraordinary. That's a possibility. And that will happen over the course of your practice. In the meantime, though, boredom is another one of those systemic experiences. It's not personal. We live in a culture that is completely addicted to things being excessively stimulating. So when that stimulation, when something is maybe neutral, not, not pleasant or unpleasant, neutral, we just check out or we get really bored. And if you could actually sense that feeling of boredom, and as the practice goes along, we work with the mental state. We don't say, I'm bored, and become, create a new identity about being bored about meditation and then make a whole conclusion about meditation. We notice, oh, boredom is arising. What's the experience of boredom? What happens to boredom when it's felt? Where is it felt? And there's usually a felt sense in our body, a kind of dullness. And we take it, that becomes the next thing to notice. Otherwise, we're, we're just back into our strategy of trying to make something more stimulating. And that which creates a kind of dependency and then we become part of that addictive cycle. So for now, come a little closer and if the coming closer, there's still a sense of boredom, notice what boredom is like. Boredom's like this. There's not somebody being bored. There's just boredom arising. Boredom is bored. And that's, and that's meditative understanding. It's selfless. Please, one more over here. 
What about when there's um, a hyper focus on the breath? Um, the closer and closer you get to it, or you sort of hyper focus on it, that starts to create an anxiety. How do you work with that? Do you just well, observe the anxiety? Thank you for the question. Hyper focus on the breath, where it starts to create a sense of anxiety. So in that same way as with boredom, you would, you really, there's many things happening there. And you can see, that you could just notice the sequence of what's happening. There's the hyper-focus. You can feel, what does hyper-focus mean? Is there a, sen- a kind of tension in it? Is there kind of a bearing down? You could even notice that quality. Then you could, and then if anxiety comes, you can notice, oh, this is anxiety. And so none of that is one thing. It's not just hyper-focus and then the story around it. There's hyper-focus, or there's the breath, there's the energy that you're, the effort that you're using. And a lot of, mostly the only thing we really ever adjust in our practice, just to make it easy for you, is the quality of our effort or our attention. And so if it feels like you're really bearing down on it, you just soften you think of it more as something you receive than something you go out to, to get. Because then it becomes really bound up in identity. I'm going to go get it. And if I don't notice it, uh, everything will fall apart. And we often see that kind of hypervigilance as a, a microcosm for the way we live our lives in some way. I'm, I'm not saying that you do, but it's not uncommon. But it's also a place where you can start to sense that there may be another way to live your life, another way to be with the breath, and one is to, is to at least balance that, that interest or that intensity with some receptivity, so, or gentleness, and and sometimes we'll get too tight, and we make gentle. Sometimes we'll get so gentle that we'll space out, and then we we tighten up again. So it's not one thing or the other; it's finding the means that helps you at that moment. Please share the body prose that you read, like the author, where that comes from. It doesn't have an author. Oh. <laughs> it's kind of a widely shared list of factoids. Is that the one you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. I just found that really cool and fascinating, and I would love to be able to I, th- like, I think you could probably look it up. You could probably look I it up. I can Google that. What's that? I can Google, Google that. That's right. Okay. You can Google. <laughs> what would my search words be? Google has body, a function in this world. Cosm, Make us crazy or... Or it's interesting that you know there's a lot of jokes made about the version of us that plays out on Google and the version of us that plays out on Facebook. Facebook is everything that's beautiful and wonderful, and the Google version of ourselves is how do I deal with my anxiety <laughs> and, and uh, this body that I'm so attached to. So it's, it's, it's all very interesting. Last one, and then we're going to take some. Hi. When you've been talking about these five heaps and the selflessness that is with each heap, and then when I'm meditating and I notice myself looping back from a thought back to breath, thought back to breath, um, I don't even know how to ask. I I know what your question is, I think. Well, I'm one Who is it that's moving back to the breath? Isn't that your question, kind of? What is it? Is there a name for it? Is it ever named? Is it talked about in yeah. Buddhist philosophy? Yeah. The, the direct, the, the, 
the quality of mind that gets directed to the breath, it's called vitaka. It's the gathering of attention. It's the aiming of attention. And, the, and then this, the part that I talked about sustain, that's called vichara. Those two qualities of gathering and sustaining when we put our attention on the breath, those are what are called uh, mental factors or concentration factors. They're selfless. From the proximity of your normal view of reality, you, dis- you realized that you were off and you decided to move back. So that's from the vantage point of the personality view of identity. But from a meditative perspective, again, we're, I promised you based on the learning guidelines to talk about Buddhist psychology a little bit and the creation of self. When we look at it more through the lens of Buddhist psychology or, or things just the way they actually are in a slightly more uh, direct way, is um, it's a beautiful thing. It's mysterious. But let's say a thought arises. You know, our, this mind stream, mind and body stream, it produces thoughts. We're thinking machines. It won't stop no matter how much you meditate. There will be gaps, clearly. They have discontinuity. It's not just one stream. So the mind produces thoughts. If mindfulness rises up to meet that thought, that thought just becomes another part of the display of awareness. A thought is known and it fades away. But if that thought is unrecognized when it arises, mindfulness doesn't show up in the five heap, in that, in that heap to recognize that, that thought with the inclusion in the heap of wrong view, of personalizing, of lack of mindfulness, is that thought without mindfulness will tend to trigger more thoughts. One teacher calls that the, the chain of delusion. Because then we start living in that little version of ourselves, that, that, that little story. However, at some point, based on hopefully your, that you've nurtured the habit of, of noticing with clear comprehension, you've trained in some kind of mindfulness, which is what we're doing. At some point, mindfulness rises up to notice, oh, there's I'm clearly comprehending right now. There's clear comprehension right now of a thought having passed. Or it may be even in the middle of the thought. It's kind of just bursts. So that mindfulness re-arising, it was nobody who, who came back. Mindfulness showed up. And mindfulness's function is to notice what's happening. Without judgment, without any kind of um, reaction, just seeing, oh, this is mindfulness. And at that moment, when that new heap of, that mindfulness has in it, it may also have some other mental factors. Because we have been together, or you've been on other retreats, or you've, been, you've heard teachings, there is in your stream of consciousness the value of... Um, 
placing of of developing that capacity to direct your attention to something that's more current. And we come back to the breath of the body. So that condition of having heard teachings and the wisdom that you found from your own practice before, it arises with that moment of noticing and the next moment the impulse comes to redirect the attention to the breath again. And that whole sequence of causes and what we call causes and conditions uh, is, it's just happening. But then we, in our conventional narrative, we say, I wandered and then I came back. And as long as we keep seeing through the realm, through the lens of I wandered and I came back, we start judging it when we wander and feel, feeling bad about ourselves when we wander and feeling good about ourselves when we're present. And it turns into a measurement of how, how we're doing. It turns into a whole personality view. And that's what the, the Dharma wants us to get off of that wheel of the endless measurements and personalizing something that's just so impersonal. And the more we see how impersonal it is, the, the tendency to judge it becomes less and less. And the, then the tendency to, be, to feel so bad for ourselves that we've been so hard on ourselves about something that's not even our fault becomes less and less. And that's the, anecdotally, that's the most common description of people when they come on retreat again and again and again is progressively say, God, I'm so much nicer to myself now. I don't get, I just take it the way it is. I don't, I don't make it so personal. I don't give myself such a hard time. And what we find is that people come to practice, and especially in the West, with these, this excessive idealism and are so, have so much self-judgment, so much self-hatred, and it gets projected right onto the meditation practice as though it's some kind of personal indictment if your mind wanders. It, so, I don't know if that answered your question, but have fun with it. Just say, you can even ask the self the question, what, what drifted and what came back? See for yourself. I should have said that first. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, thanks for the morning. We have so much more to talk about. About the, the I want to tell you how the Buddha realized uh, the how he broke down the whole creation of identity and how, in his own practice, he realized the um, how he saw through the illusion of self. And I'll just give you a little sneak preview with the as we go to lunch and see if it hits you or not, with the song that he shared the moment after his awakening. It said that he's, he let out this kind of song of awakening. And this afternoon we'll discuss that and a little bit more talk a lot about one of the chronic ways that we get caught up in identity and uh, in the form of um, what's called the comparing mind. Any of you interested in that? But here's what the Buddha said. He's sitting under the Bodhi tree. He's had his awakening, which I'll also describe a little this afternoon. And he's, he's had this awakening to what, what's really true about mind-body and, and, and the selflessness of it. And he, he lets out this song. He says, uh, through many births, 
In other words, I just kept getting born into this. Through many births in the wandering on, I ran, seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Remember, uh, loving the house that Ego built? He says, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. O house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build another house. In other words, you won't, uh, you won't be able to build it and I I'll notice what you're doing. Your, oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build another house. Your rafters are broken, which is um, all the confusion in the mind, defilements. The ridgepole destroyed. That's ignorance. That's avidya. And the way it's described is he returns to vidya or or the intrinsic freedom. It says, your rafters are broken, ridgepole destroyed, the mind gone to the unconditioned, to vidya, not avidya, not ignorance, to craving, to cravings cessation. That what happens when, we're, when we get caught in identity is we're constantly craving for, for uh, security, innocent. But when you see through it, that, that craving just goes. And you realize the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of your nature. And you, of course, you never, you try never to stray away from that. Again, not let yourself be defined by your roles, or your comparisons, your judgments. Uh, you, you just relax and then your your life has a little bit of regardless of your circumstances has this capacity to ride the waves and to be a be a support to other people who are are caught up innocently in their group identities and their individual identities so we want to it's really for the benefit not just for ourselves but for all beings to see through this illusion anyway too many words Love being with you this morning, and we will. Ha- I think because how much time do you think you need? You think forty-five minutes is enough for lunch or an hour? <laughs> okay. the The gong will the gong will ring in forty-five minutes, and you'll will ten minutes to get back here. So it'll be about fifty-five minutes total. Forty-five minutes from now, we'll, you'll hear a gong and. Have a great lunch and just try to stay mindful of even the process of eating. The arm reaches, then it grabs the food, and then the arm comes. Where is the self in all that?
So this afternoon I want to just point to something that the excuse me that that the Buddha began to see very clearly about the nature of identity the nature of self the self idea or the sense of self as I mentioned this morning it's that sense of self is uh, by its nature somewhat insecure because it it fluctuates the feeling of it fluctuates according to where you are who you're with um, <clears throat> what role you're you're functioning in or serving in <clears throat> and it is um, for that reason that it's always changing. It is not what the Buddha recognized. It was not a reliable refuge. And he saw that human beings are always looking for a reliable refuge, some place that you could really rely on, really rest, uh, something security, something secure. And even though in the world of identity we're always the identity is always looking for security it's it just isn't possible to find it in in any kind of identity um, and in his own practice he worked very hard to find something he saw that people were just spinning their wheels around and around looking for security in their bodies he called it the pride in youth the pride in health and the pride in life he saw that we had we built identity around staying young and youth always gives way to aging definition of birth leading cause of aging and that we tend to build our identity around health. Naturally, we want to be healthy. But that our pride in health is not reliable because it health always, at some point in the span of our life, many points in the span of our life, gives way to, uh, to illness. And he saw that our... That a lot of our pride was built around um, our um, desire for existence, for our life. It may be built into our DNA, but life, life as an individual, is temporary. The definition of birth from the Wiley's Dictionary, leading cause of death. And in his own awakening that just happened very innocently as he was searching for some comfort something reliable and he saw someone similar in age to him who was at the time he was 29 and it shocked him to see somebody uh, similar in age who was so ill and very near dying and then he saw which is really symbolic for our obliviousness and what we do with people who are aging, he saw an extremely old person. And then, uh, another reminder of how we don't really look at this, he saw a corpse. You know, and 
in India, for example, they carry the, the dead bodies in front of everybody to see and then they burn them at the burning ghats. And it normalizes the reality of sickness, aging, and dying. But here we tend to not... We dress up our corpses, we put the people who are elderly or, we, or even choose, because we've all internalized the cultural habits, we, choose, we, we put them in uh, places that um, house elderly people. And some of that has its advantages, but it's, it, it creates a, a systemic view of reality that um, makes us somewhat unaware of the reality of sickness, aging, and dying. But for the Buddha, just seeing the nature of the body in this form of what were called the heavenly messengers, it just shook him out of his trance of thinking he, you have time. Uh, thinking that, uh, that, that youth is something that can be clung to, or health can be clung to, or life can be clung to. He saw none of it can be clung to. But of course that didn't answer the question, well, in this world of change, it seems people are getting older, sick, dying, and it seems like everything that they do to try to br- create relief seems to also have a little, have a shelf life. You have an experience, it comes, it goes, and not only does it not, the pleasure of it not last is not reliable, but it leaves in its wake this constant craving for more. So he saw a few things, that the body was not a reliable refuge for our identity. The more identified with the body, the more as it ages, you, you, um, you feel as though you are aging. And I noticed that the knowing in me doesn't age. Body ages, but when, when there's just knowing, I can never find an age to it. As my cousin, who had this rare form of, whose body had this rare form of uh, cancer, lung cancer, I, I loved it. He was so innocent, he wasn't a Dharma practitioner, a meditator, or anything. He says, you know, my body has cancer, I don't. You know, that was the way he put it. Because he began to recognize that there was some part of his nature, some element that was untouched by what was visiting. And the same thing happened to the Buddha. It kind of shook him out of that body identity. And he saw that, that um, the body identity and the clinging to youth and to health and life was all part of a pattern of, of thinking about ourselves as the body that exists in time. And in understanding time, it helped him realize that part of him that's outside, that's, that's timeless, that steps out of time. And I'll try to make some sense of this, I hope. So when we sit here, for example, and whether you get this or not, just it's very difficult to put these things in language. But when we sit here, we are here in what we call the present moment. And if you stay here long enough, you see that, uh, that there really is only this. 
And there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And when you leave here, there'll be this, and this, and this. There's only a present that at any moment, at any time when you are, when you are conscious, you will not be able to find a past, and you will not be able to find a future. You'll only find an unfolding present. That we only experience the past as memories arising in real time. We only experience the future as, um, as uh, worries or uh, looking forward to things. But all that happens in present time. There really is no future that, that we somehow magically in our mind throw somewhere in front of us and then often worry about. But not, it doesn't really exist. It's unborn, that it's often said. And the past has passed. It's a, it, was, it was some kind of past-present moment, but it's not here except as memory. And it's thrilling and wonderful to be able to remember people from my past. It's not, it's not the difficult ones. But being able to orient myself in this shared concept of time is very useful. I'm here, I was there, I will be there. It's nice. But all of that is a narrative. It's a story. There really is only an unfolding present. How do you feel about that? <laughs> nervous. What are you nervous about? Aha. So are you, So you're nervous about losing the things you identify with. But isn't that, isn't that a... Um, a moment of thinking about the future, being without. So again, you just created the future and then got nervous. Uncertain. Uncertain. So that's all about creating the sense of future, which doesn't really exist, and and getting nervous. We, if we're just where we are, we generally, um, and we get used to it. There's really not much to be nervous about because all you could, all you ever have to navigate is that present moment. So the next one hasn't happened when you lost everything and all your identities, that hasn't happened. That's just an idea. There's just this one. And you can manage this one. And so most of our, our anxiety and worry is when we imagine the future that really never arrives in any way like you think it will. And not to mention that time is only and always now. So the Buddha recognized that what our mind does is it, it constructs the version of ourselves that plays in our mind. Stay with me. It constructs ourselves. And this is fine. It's great if you notice that this is how we do it. It's not so good if you think that this is the absolute truth. But it's really interesting to see the way and even eventually love the way and enjoy it, be, be in awe of the way our mind creates ourselves moment by moment. As that one passage I read earlier, how we're creating it moment by moment. The way that we create ourselves is we imagine that we have, the version of myself that plays through my mind, is that I have come from the past This is my story. I'm passing through here. Now the only place life is turns out to be 
more like a pass-through. I've come from the past. I'm passing through here on my way to the future when I'll either get it or I won't or I'll lose it or I won't. So the imagined me that's going through, I've come from the past, passing through the present, on my way to the future, becomes um, entranced in a view that if I'm going to be happy, if I'm going to find that reliable refuge, it will be uh, determined by whether I get to where I want to go or get what I want or get rid of what I don't want. So my happiness then becomes tethered to, it becomes hooked to an imagined future. And because the future doesn't exist, there is, like you said, complete uncertainty. We don't know how things will unfold. So if I make myself dependent on how things turn out, my well-being, few things happen. One, I'm anxious. I'll be anxious. Not because life is so anxiety-provoking. It's because the way I've constructed it in my mind is anxiety-provoking. Because I've put, I've put all my eggs in the basket of a future that is completely uncertain. That we recognize. That craving for, the Buddha called it bhava, craving for becoming. That orientation of our life toward a future that never arrives because time is always now. That itself, if, if we fall into a case of misidentification, making our well-being dependent on how things turn out creates uh, stress for us. And not only does it create stress when we're living in that imagined future. Now remember, we never really live in the imagined future. We're only living here worrying about the future. But when we're worrying about the future, our mind, out of great love and desire for relief, we say, I'm so anxious. I'm so worried. What can I do? How hard can I work? What can I do to not be so nervous? And the, the usual preoccupation, and this is part of our culture, is we try to figure it out. We move right into rational mind and say, uh, how can I assure that I get where I'm going? That I get to where I want to be? And then I start working it. Does this resonate at all for you? I start working it, and I'm working it so hard that because rational mind, without the being engaged in all the senses, rational mind is a terrible decision maker and figure, figure outer. It usually leads to more anxiety because our body, when our mind is in a case of figuring out, without some orientation to real time, to the only time that life is, our body goes into fight, flight, or freeze. We, we freeze. We tighten up. And what does tightening up do when our bodies tighten up? 
it creates an internal pressure that then releases as more discursive thinking. And we live more and more and more in our imagined uh, view of ourselves that's, uh, that's passing through time. What happens to the present moment, the only place where we actually live, where, where peace can be found? It turns into, a, a, it turns into as Eckhart Tolle, you know, one of the great things about his simple teachings, he says it turns into three things. A pass-through, turns into an obstacle, it turns into an enemy, a place where we're at. And that's the only, the only place where we live turns into, into something that's not very easy to inhabit. So that's why it was so essential, why the Buddha, I, I thought I had the quote with me, he said, there's one thing, O oh monks, that leads to calm and focus, a pleasant dwelling, an abandonment of the defilements of mind, the torments of the mind. What's that one thing? Mindfulness directed to the body, keeping your mind in your body. Keep your orientation to real time. Because everything else is imaginary. That one who you imagine yourself to be in time is a virtual version of you. It's not the direct experience of your life. And as long as we live in that virtual version, that they're detached some degree from our body, from the source of insight and intuition, which is having all of our senses engaged, uh, we're anxious. So a lot of the anxiety that we experience of our, in our lives uh, is somewhat dependent on being disembodied, not having our... our self-settled in real time. Now some of us are more wired for, for uh, being high-strung or, or being more anxious. Some of it is, is, um, is um, hereditary. You know, sometimes it, certain habits run in families, genetic in some degree. But a lot of it is just mental habits. And of course our mental habits are also not so personal in that uh, we live in a culture that is devoted to... Um, in fact, I even brought a quote. Here's a, an advertisement from somebody recently gave me. It was an advertisement for a snowmobile. And it says, what matters is what's next. And, and the whole, the, the consumer culture is, is all about, as one teacher said, keeping us greedy to keep going. And it just assaults us with this impregnable environment of addiction that promises happiness but leads to misery, leads us into that state of anxiety. And, uh, and then Bo Lozoff, uh, who deceased Bo Lozoff, who started the the prison, prison ashram project teaching meditation and, and awakening in prisons. He, he hung out in over 600 prisons uh, trying to help people wake up while they were incarcerated. But he says that we spend a lot of time, and this goes a little bit into a later this afternoon part, of keeping up with the Joneses, you know, having what they have. He says, but it's time that we understand that the Joneses were not happy. 
Anyway, there's more, more to say about that later. So you can see as you practice this afternoon a few things. You can study, and again we'll study our body as we settle into it, and see that, it's, that it's, um, it is a wonderful anchor for our attention in real time. But as something that we can actually rely on, it's always changing. And there's no place that we can find in our body and say, this is me, this is always the same, this is mine. And, not, and the point is not to just adopt a view, oh, this body is not myself, but it's to realize it, to let go of that intense identification there is with the body through understanding its changing nature and being in harmony with that as things come and go. So that's one place that we can really understand the selflessness and not again not adopt a theory about it but realize oh this body is doing its own thing it ages by itself it changes by itself you can't tell it not to get old as our founding one of our founding teachers Jack Cornfield says this is a rent a body <laughs> and we just experience that and even the knowing of that is, is a rented moment. It's coming and going. So, but that's a different conversation. Please. Wait, we need the microphone so, because I think this is being recorded, right, Kevin? Yes. Thank you for being patient. I resonate, very, I resonate very strongly with everything that was just said. And in my own meditation practice, it's like very healing for me to keep coming back to that. Sometimes though, so I work as a coach. Um, and so I work with a lot of clients that are trying to plan. Yes. There's a lot of planning going on. Yes. Planning is an essential part of life. <laughs> right. So it's like, sometimes I'll describe these concepts. And even I find myself also like kind of questioning it. How is this in that it, first it can feel like this is in conflict with planning. Yeah, right. But not. then it's like, it's not. Because no. you can be now planning. Well, that's the only time planning takes place is now. Right, right. Can't plan any other time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, is, wait, this isn't in conflict. But I think there's that moment sometimes where I'm like, oh, this might be in direct conflict with planning because when I'm planning or I'm helping someone plan for something, a job promotion yes. or this yes. or that or uh, getting pregnant or whatever it's like there's like a um yeah like that it's future oriented yes we have to plan it's really a helpful thing to plan uh to the extent we can to plan for those future present moments and we want to especially plant the seeds right now this is this only reality this is the field where we plant the seeds that become our future present moments so we do want to we do need to plan. The problem with planning is not the plan. Right. It's that the the we often get lost in the plan, lose contact with it it's happening now just like you said. And we start associating our happiness yeah. with the succession of right. the plan the rather than knowing that happiness is only and always now. Right. And so we, what the Dharma teaches us to do, the Dharma is the teaching, is to, first things first, know where happiness is to be found. Be happy. 
as you plan, as you wait, as you execute, as you become, whatever it is, you don't have to postpone being home, being whole, while you're busy planning. Right. So what we do, though, is hold our well-being and happiness hostage. We put ourselves in a state yeah. of suspended happiness. Yeah. And then we're waiting to see how it turns out and getting more and more anxious. Yeah, and that's, that's the part that's extra. Yeah. But planning, of course, is part of my life. I, I'm actually, I was just telling somebody who wanted me to go there's a place happening up in Lake Tahoe now called uh, some resort that in their off times turns into, they call it Tahoe-listic. They have, they have workshops. <laughs> wanted to know whether I wanted to, to participate in a workshop. And, and I said, I have to tell you, I'm scheduled two years out in advance for retreats. Yeah, and yeah. and it's, it's ironic that somebody who's, you know, I'm talking about being, you know, here and now, and I have to do this enormous amount of planning. So they're not really in conflict with one yeah, another. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really, really helpful because sometimes I, I get like heady about it and like I get into the philosophy yeah. about it and then, yeah. oh, this is, but then yeah. when I just come back to it, it's like, and actually that's right. all works together. The Dharma is just about not postponing your well-being. Yeah, yes. Okay, thank you. You can't find here. There is no other place. Please. So, hi, thank you. For following up on that, and you said the Dharma is constantly about planting the seeds now for that future state. Well, not just uh, for the future state. Whether you had a future or not, you'd still want to, to, uh, you'd still want to be cultivating things that both now and in future present moments will will feel uh, gladdening, uplifting for the benefit of others. So yes. And how do we how do we weigh that that balance between that present and that future, whether it's encouraging things that will create well being now for ourselves and others or for the future? When do we know to plan and, and oh. I'm curious about when do you know to, to plan and what there's, seeds there's over to plan? Planning. It's, it's, there's over planning. There's I, deciding I, to plan. Yeah, I think it's, it's the willingness to make mistakes. It's the willingness to, to when you make it, when you over plan, that becomes the cause of, of not over planning. If you under plan, it becomes the cause of, of planning more. So it, everything I'm saying assumes what I've come to see as true is that if you are engaged in the only place that life is, which is real time, then then we have everything. Part of the function of our awareness itself is wisdom, is discernment, is uh, skill. We just know better what to do. If we're lost in our plans, if we're, if we're turning the present moment into the pass-through on our way to someplace else, there's often the narrowing of our focus, a kind of clouding of our perception, and our, our skillfulness, our intelligence doesn't work as well. But the more you get used to being here, the more you see that 
decisions make themselves, that things work, things, I don't want to make it sound too magical, but you just find that you have the, you have the tool set right here that you need. And so I can't answer that question, but you can. Um, And the whole of practice is not to rely on any external authority, but to see that you have within you that capacity to, to see. And how do you see? Is by making mistakes. That, that, but one of our identities is perfectionism, one of the things we measure from, and, and that becomes a big problem. Please. Um, it definitely resonates that uh, the only thing that's real is not the past or the future, but the present. Um, what if somebody has anxiety or difficult feelings in the present? If you're grounding yourself in the now, yeah, well, the, that's a wonderful question, and thank you. And the next instruction will be working with, uh, with along with other sensations and and the breath. It's working with what we call states of the heart and states of mind, mental states. And uh, anxiety is a mental state. It's a and it, as your as your attention develops real strength, you could actually sit with it and notice it that it's a changing condition. You could notice that it's selfless, that it comes and goes, it comes uninvited. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not so personal, but it's, it's anxiety. So anxiety, you start to see that anxiety is anxious. But for most of us, our minds aren't well trained enough to sit with it and study it in that very direct way. And so we try to touch we try to touch it in small doses. So you, you sense and you know that this is anxiety and you can say to yourself, anxiety is like this when you feel it. But then you don't stay long. You shift your attention. You stay conscious. You don't just check out. You don't just try to be somewhere else. You move your attention to some place in your environment, in your body, that's not anxious. There's usually some place that's not anxious. And you just hang out there a little bit. It could be your hands, could be your breathing, could be your just the general feeling of your whole body. It may even have to be something visual, like just seeing something, something either neutral or slightly pleasant. And you go back and forth. You don't check out again. You touch it a little bit, and slowly, slowly, you learn how to how to be able to be with anxiety. But typically, if your mind is not so well trained to be able to sustain attention, that when you do pay attention to anxiety, you might, get, you might start to get anxious about being anxious, and it compounds. So in order to prevent that, we just touch into it. We orient to something else. And the other thing that's essential in working with anxiety is that we don't contract around it. And that you do... that, And there are many, 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 many skillful means to help you soften toward it. Could be you start directing loving kindness toward yourself and that feel the ouch of it. So self-compassion. You may, uh, you may even consciously reflect on what you're grateful for. So gratitude can sometimes gladden the heart and soften. Anything that will create the conditions that you can accommodate it anxiety and not be exacerbating it, not, not having it compound. So uh, it's an art. 
and it's part of our practice and you just have to get used to it. As everybody, if you're human, you have anxiety from time to time. So again, it's, it's not because um, we're all wired to have that view of ourselves that's in time. That's, I'm worried about when I... Sometimes, sometimes I'll have that, that momentary worry about that moment of dying. Any of you ever have that? Other times it seems so natural. And so sometimes it's a, there's strong body identification, sometimes not. So it's just part of, part of what we have to learn to accommodate as humans. Hope I'm not saying anything that doesn't feel normal. <laughs> Please. Uh, so I think that anxiety that you're talking about and that idea of having your happiness, holding it hostage to whatever happens in the future, uh, that can be very debilitating, but at the same time, it can be very motivating because you're striving towards something that you want to become. And uh, while I know what you're saying, and I want to move more, to, I want to move away from that. That's kind of been it's how been a I've motivator been living. And and without that, it's like how do you stay motivated? Uh, well, often when we're when we don't have anxiety and we feel a little bit um, more freed up, we actually execute our plans a little easier. I haven't found that it actually... It may be a motivation, uh, but I think that we actually function 200% better when we're not so hostage to the future. So I don't think... I, I wouldn't worry about losing your edge you know, losing your motivation. I can understand that question, but I think that it's exactly the opposite of what you might think. That um, I think you, what anxiety gets replaced with is passion, is love, is, uh, is often, be, if there's a little less of you, that there's much more freedom to, there's a kind of an interest, it's almost like an altruistic impulse comes even stronger. Uh, but it's less about satisfying myself and much more about um, being a benefit. Um, so the motivation does change. But I've yet to see anybody that lost that anxiety that became um, uh, any less alive, passionate, caring. And if their life, if what you love to do and love to develop, if that um, is in harmony with being well, being at ease, it will just get easier. Uh, but sometimes people find that what they were hooking their identity to and becoming stops feeling as meaningful. Whatever that, whatever that goal was, doesn't it felt like sometimes it, it, it tends to have more anxiety when it's connected with some other uh, idea of your, somebody else's idea or some um, view of who you should be. Some, some ideal that's not, um, that actually makes it harder. So some people change course in their life and hopefully that happens very, gra- very gradually, but um, I just wouldn't worry about losing the edge. Yeah, it's a great question though. Thank you. One more, and then we'll sit. 
I work with college students quite a bit, and I can re remember this back when I was a college student. Uh, yeah. The paper is due. And a lot of college students, and when I was, we'd wait until the last minute because the anxiety had to get up to a certain level. Yes, that's the that's the using the anxiety to get through with things. Yeah. Yeah, it's a terrible, terrible study habit. I'm not sure what to tell the students as far as put it closer to your mouth. I'm not sure how to advise the students on that. Oh. Well, I'm not. I am not a student advisor, um, so I I do a little um, disclaimer. But I, but what I would have wanted to do, I was a little bit like that. And what I would have liked to do when I was young enough was to uh, feel the discomfort of uh, doing things right away, even if there was a momentary discomfort. Once I was, once I realized I was launched into if I could go through that first moment of not wanting to do it, and often the procrastination is really about the pressure of some kind of ideal that you don't think you can measure, that's often bound up with, with identity view and self-esteem, that if I could just feel that a little bit and then just do the first few minutes, and you as a coach, you know that if you can just do it in small bites, often once you make that little breakthrough, then the whole thing opens up and you don't have to wait till the last minute. And you can, and doing things in, in increments and just in a more sane way. Uh, almost considering what, is the, what would be the most loving way to do things. That's not, it's not usually our consideration. And I don't think it's very loving. I think it's really almost violent to... to uh, create that kind of internal pressure, but what do I know? <laughs> Quite a bit, I think. Thank you. Anyway, thanks for all. I didn't realize we would get off to this on this train, but so I, there's one more that I wanted to. So there was the the body identity, which is always changing. There's the the identity with time, which is always running out, <laughs> and that creates its own t internal pressure. And then what I was referring to earlier is the identity with thinking. Thinking a thought of myself is myself, which I went into a lot this morning, but not understanding that, be, that, a, that an identity built on thoughts, because thoughts are always changing, again, according to circumstances, according to my my, how much food I've eaten, how much sleep I've had. Thoughts are, are by their nature not a reliable place to, to find refuge. They are empty, changing, selfless. And because of that, identity based on thoughts is, is insecure. So again, we don't get rid of our thoughts of ourselves. We can think about ourselves a lot but we can start to notice the thinking about ourselves. That's what I was inviting you to do. That when you notice that the mind is, is thinking about yourself, you just treat it as the thinking mind thinking, or, or there's the identity thoughts. And you gently, gently acknowledge that, acknowledge that. see that that's just the next thing that's being known in your awareness. 
maybe the most liberating experience you can have as a human being is, is literally shifting your attention from being carried along by that stream of views about yourself to noticing it. From being lost in thought to noticing the thoughts. That's in general, but the more specific one, being lost in thoughts of yourself to noticing that you are having. Relating to the thoughts rather than living in them or relating from them. That's a it's almost the difference between being bound up, bondage and freedom, is being able to notice. <laughs> Ooh. Never comes out the same twice. The difference between, I'll just say it more absolute sounding, the difference between bondage and freedom is the difference between being lost and carried along by the, by the view of ourselves that plays in our mind Moving from that, being lost in it, to noticing it. From, from relating to our thoughts as thoughts, to our identities as identities, rather than living, acting from them and then feeling like we are not enough. Like something's off. So many examples. One of the big things that goes through our mind, I was talking about keeping up with the Joneses. And the Joneses are, a lot of our thinking about ourselves is evaluating whether we have enough or whether we've accomplished enough or doing enough or busy enough, whatever. So, so one of the things Bo Lozoff says is only recently that people began associating their self-worth, and this is all goes on in our mind, associating their self-worth, self-esteem, status in the community, their very identity with their career. It's just the, it's a passing fad in human history. It's actually a new thing. So don't get caught up in it, he says. He says, men like my grandfather may have been considered the pillar of their church or community. And what he did for a living was paint houses. My granduncle collected rags. Both honorable, esteemed men. To them, what they did for money was the pettiest part of life. No blue-collar, white-collar nonsense. So long as it was honest, who cared? And further... They worked as little as possible. Not as much. They fed their families, paid their rent. They weren't trying to get ahead. Another interesting expression, get ahead of what? So you get the drift. A lot of preoccupation with getting ahead, becoming, uh, associating our worth with what we do or what we're becoming. Well, it's easy to forget in this, in the way that our minds spin and then our bodies react with anxiety. It's easy to forget that, and I know this is an often used trite expression, that we are not human doings, we're human beings. 
but we've we've um, mastered not even mastered we've gotten addicted to the human doing and and lost touch with just the balance of of being as we are which doesn't preclude doing but it it's the balance that we don't forget that we're always here and that and we're just as much a, a being as we are a doer. And if you don't strike a balance in our lives, we tend to spend a lot more time in that orientation of our imagination toward becoming something at some other point. That becoming happens anyway. We're always refining, developing, emerging, transforming. But all that happens here. All, it hap- all of it happens now. And if you plant the seeds of, of meditative awareness, your future present moments get really bright, really simple, filled with, with uh, caring, filled with insight, filled with understanding. That's a, that is a, a developmental process, but it happens through, it's fulfilled through how you take care of this moment. It's not fulfilled by how much you think about the future. As uh, the poet Rumi says, forget the future. You know, it, you know that's it more. So he says, forget the future. He says, I'd worship somebody who could do that. <laughs> you have to have a sense of humor too. <laughs> well, as he goes on in that same poem, he says, the cure for pain is in the pain. Is if we're uncomfortable with how things are unfolding, we first and foremost, we attend to what's uncomfortable. We don't immediately launch into the obsession with what's next. That's what locks in uh, anxiety, locks in worry, locks in the sense of uh, being disembodied and disconnected from the only life that we have, which is now. So with that in mind, let's, let's sit. Refreshing your posture a little bit. If you need to stretch your legs and stand up and then sit back down, stay in the room. While you're doing that, I'll consult my learning objectives. So far, so good. <laughs> nope. I was just seeing whether I was, I was reflecting about the past, whether we've been covering the bases. <laughs> See, all of it. I didn't have to leave here to do that. Just as a little aside as we're settling in, some of you who've sat with me, I've talked about this before, but there was a in graduate school, I studied language and the way people construct their their orientation to time uh, based on, in very culturally unique ways. There was one culture, and maybe you heard about the Mokan culture in uh, in Burma uh, when that big tsunami came in the late '90s or something, or early 2000s. The Mokan tribe that lived next to a much more modern, acculturated tribe, this Mokan tribe 
they survived the tsunami because they, they were really in touch with nature. And so people were studying the way that they thought and the way they lived. And there were two words that were missing from the Mokan language, which we just take for granted. The word when was missing and the word want. Two words that, that create this whole view of ourselves uh, in time. Want when? When am I going to get it? I want this. But the, um, more interesting than that was this other culture, and I don't remember their name, but they viewed the past and the future, this, cult, this tribe, exactly backwards. They saw the future behind and the past in front, because you can see the past. You can't see the future. Their whole orientation was opposite. So, so we may not realize we're, that we're living in a, way, in a constructed view of ourselves uh, that's very cultural. Time, past, past is behind, future in front. It's not really true. It's just an idea. Anyway. So once we're here, it's ideal to let the fact that we're here right now, let it gladden our hearts. Just feel that to whatever degree you can delight in being conscious, that you've come out, at least for a moment, you've come out of the tangle of this trance of time, and you're here. You're free. Free to be. Not to be somebody, to become someone. Free for that too, but, but just free. And you're in the company of others who are supporting your practice. You can delight in that a little bit. You can delight in the fact that you have eyes that see and ears that hear, nose that smells, a tongue that tastes, and a body that feels. There's nothing more wild than that. The greatest mystery of all is, is you sitting here. Easy to miss. We let our eyes close and notice just the, in some sense the magic of Just closing our eyes and turning our attention toward the, not the idea of ourselves, but the felt sense. There's a stilling. There's a calming. There's a silence. An outer silence that begins to resonate with an inner silence. The silence of knowing, noticing. What we may be noticing may be the tension or agitation of our body, some mood, our breathing, sounds, but the knowing, the noticing, 
is very quiet, shy. We just know the sitting posture is the sitting posture. Breathing is breathing. Feel the shape and the form of our body, its aliveness. Maybe settle in with the touch of the hands or settle in with the breath. And if other sensations call our attention, we notice their flavor, pleasant, unpleasant, aching, burning. We notice what happens to them. They're changing. Body is always changing. And as well, we include our moods, the internal weather. May feel happy, may feel sad, may feel worried, may feel glad, may feel ease or calm or spacious or agitated, restless, dull. When any of these become stronger than the breath, we simply receive that predominant mood or emotion. They feel the common, what are called the hindrances, desire, wanting, or aversion, agitation, dullness, doubt. But we recognize all of these states as changing conditions, as selfless, that desire arises, desire is desiring, anger is angry, sadness is sad, they arise unbidden, and they fade away. They're not me, they're not mine. They cannot define us. In this way they are egoless, selfless. Simply rest and being aware of whatever changing conditions present themselves, supported by the anchor of the body and breath, hands. They're always here, real time. Just this moment, just this breath, or whatever's predominant.
whatever you are aware of, let your awareness, attention be imbued with kindness. Kindness toward the thinking mind, kindness toward the feeling states, kindness toward this body that carries you, with its sensations, moods, thoughts and images. If you've gotten caught in a story of yourself, any kind of insufficiency or worry about not enough or in any form, when you become aware of it, 
be kind. Whatever the effect of that thought world may have been, your heart may have gotten tight, you may have felt self-conscious or deflated, just meet that with kindness. And in support of remaining anchored to just the unfolding present real time, we just let our attention gently, lovingly feel our whole body, our hands, our breath, whatever feels like a place to rest. Just this moment.
there's any strain or struggle, you're falling into a state of dullness, feel free to very mindfully refresh yourself and begin again. Remembering that every moment is a new beginning. Fresh.
Noticing if you're waiting for the bell to ring. Releasing the idea of the bell and associating our well-being with the bell ringing and just feeling that state of waiting. Recognizing that identity of the one who's waiting. Know what happens to that experience of waiting when it's felt. Just want to appreciate you for staying with the day. It's, um, it takes a little bit, especially as we're settling into so much uh, sitting. That there's a it takes a bit of a long enduring mind, and it's um, it can be strenuous, actually. So appreciate you staying with it. Uh, in a few minutes, we'll have a few minutes of walking, just to aerate your, you know, just to have that experience of staying present as you move, which is very portable. You take it into your life and just notice that when you walk down the street, when you walk down a hallway, you can always be right where you are. Uh, The only place you could be. (laughs) You may imagine being somewhere else, but it's really nice to have that touchstone to real time and our steps can be just a wonderful support. Well, while you were sitting, I was thinking. <laughs> and I had a few stray thoughts and, and during the sitting. And, and since we're talking about identity, you know, we often get, I, we often have um, I, a certain sense of identity around certain parts of ourselves that we think are special or good or, or right enough. And then we tend to uh, disown the other parts. We tend to have uh, judgment or shame or repression. We just don't let ourselves. So part of the culture of a place like Spirit Rock is not only is everyone welcome here, uh, whatever, your, whatever causes and conditions led you to be here, whatever your, your, uh, your culture of origin, your race, your gender, your orientation, not only if anybody is welcome here, as long as you're not, you know, screaming all day, too disruptive, everybody's welcome here, and all parts of yourself are welcome. And, you know, I don't have it with me, but there's this wonderful poem from Carl Sandburg called The Wilderness, where he he talks about all these different parts of ourselves. He says, there's a baboon in me, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, 
an eagle in me, there's a mockingbird, there's a, there's a, a man, a woman, a, 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 he, doesn't, he, he didn't live during the gender, non, non-binary gender era, but he, he basically said, you have all these parts, he says, and you're the keeper of the zoo, so to speak, He's, and you come from the wilderness, every part is part of you, and identity tends to select certain parts that are okay and not. And then we walk around trying to fit ourselves into little boxes of what's acceptable. And part of the process of meditation is to expand our circle of understanding of what we are and see that it includes everything. And, and then as we include more parts of ourselves, a wider sense of identity, we, we're more easy with including others. And we're less likely to other someone, which is that creating that sense of self and other, which is what the heart of the Buddha's realization is when you see through the illusion of this separate individuality, you see through the illusion of others, that we are so uh, connected to one another. And that's both an idea, but it's something we begin to feel as the, as the self-identity that's so narrow begins to widen that's why uh, I think the poet Rumi says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of me thinking, of fear thinking, and live in silence. And he says, flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. And So it's all in behalf of uh, helping us recognize our sense of connection and belonging. It's not about, again, becoming the great meditator. Uh, that not just for ourselves. So we always, we try to remember one of the things that gives fuel to, to meditation practice that's really uh, very central to this teaching on non-self is that, uh, is that we try to dedicate, you know, make it conscious because it gives a little more extra juice to it. Uh, consciously dedicate our life, our work, our practice, whatever it is that we do to the welfare and benefit of all, remembering that there's nothing that we do, that we think or say, that, that um, is in a vacuum. It's everything we do, think and say, is impacting our world. Um, so it's, it's not to create fear, but it's to create this, this, um, this cr- to remind us of this creative capacity to create through planting what's called wholesome seeds. Planting the wholesome seeds of goodwill, of generosity, of patience, uh, that that's really what makes the world. As an Advaita Vedanta teacher said, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. You can see right now. Human beings are kind of shrouded in so much confusion. The world is the way it is because people are the way they are. That if we want to have a peaceful world or a a sane world, an inclusive world, a diver- comfort with a diverse world. Uh, inc- yeah, all of that. Have equity in this world. There have to be wise and peaceful people. It's not something you can impose. It has to start in each of our hearts. So whatever you can do to see through the illusion of your separateness will, um, is in behalf of being more inclusive first and foremost in your own mind. And we don't even know the extent that our view is narrow. You know, for example, I've... 
in the, this, I'll do a little storytelling. In the room there is the, um, one of the people in the room today is the mother, mother-in-law of somebody who I've uh, played golf with a lot over the last many years. I'm a golfer. And my, the fact that I'm a golfer, it reflects that, uh, that I'm, I'm, I've had a measure, you know, some more than others, some more than me, I've had a measure of privilege. And I'm a, a, a white guy. That's the body. Of course, in this world right now, and, ha- and at other times in the world, I'm not the, white, the right kind of white guy, since I'm, my heritage is Jewish. But I, I try not to forget that I've had certain privileges that other people are excluded. And part of having privilege, part of that identity that inevitably comes with who you hang around and who you're influenced by, is you become oblivious to what it's like for other people to a certain degree. So the more that I've had a, a, an awakening, or I awaken on an ongoing basis to, to the things that shroud my perception, that make me uh, sometimes oblivious to what it's like for other people, the more I see that, the, the, less, the less I, um, I feel like someone else is, uh, is other. I feel a lot more connected. I feel a lot more care and sensitivity. My circle of sensitivity increases. But if I just go along and just kind of live out my life, practice mindfulness, all that, there are certain ways that I might not, uh, hopefully I'll wake up a little bit, but I might not be aware of of the hidden identities that come through just my circumstances. So we try to we try to see not just the the basic identity view of I'm this or that that's based on roles or body, but all our cultural identities too. It's a very interesting thing to and very and I think for, especially in this world right now, where there is a kind of collective awakening about um, for many there was a. You know, for people who've had a little less privilege, there is, it's been a constant reminder of, of differentness, of differences. But nevertheless, I, I started this by talking about, um, there's a, uh, a golfing friend of mine. Uh, his mother-in-law is here today. And one of the ways that we tend to spin in our own individuality is, uh, I think I mentioned it earlier in the day, and it's something that I want you to include in the next instruction, is what the Buddha called mana, mana, or otherwise it's usually translated as conceit. And it's really just another way of naming what is the probably one of the most frequent visitors in our mind, which is called comparing mind. Comparing mind is creating identity around being what's called atimana, which is better than, um, mana, which is equal to, or amana, which is less than. And the constant refrain of measurement that, are, that is, tends to repeat itself in our mind, measuring ourselves, haves, have-nots, uh, the um, good, better, best, and the preoccupation that tends to go through our mind with, with measuring up. Any of you relate to that? It's a human thing. So this, 
you know, in, in seeing my friend's uh, mother-in-law today, I was thinking of my identity as a, uh, as a golfer. This may seem kind of weird to you, but when I was a younger golfer, I was a champion golfer. And now, I'm a has-been. And yet, because I had, in my youth, I was the state junior champion in my state that I grew up in, I developed this identity view of being above. And as my game, and you can, you can transpose anything I say into whatever your version of it is, my, as my game has diminished, <laughs> which is really obvious, <laughs> that old identity is still at play. It's still part of the conditioning. And that, become, that old identity becomes the, the basis of the comparison, of the, of the conceit. And the old identity, the shadow side of, of being, uh, in this small measure, successful, is that everything you do starts getting measured based on that ideal. And there is a constant visiting of the sense of not measuring up. And if you know that that's what your mind is doing, it's just comparing mind. If you don't know what your mind is doing and you don't have understanding of it, you're not familiar with it, when it, when you start to feel less than, everything kind of collapses, deflates. And you wonder, and you start to believe, I'm really this person that's less than. And it becomes kind of globalized in a mood. Uh, and then the, the beauty of, of waking up to this is when you, when you, for a moment, you measure up. There's this feeling of inflation. Good. If you understand that, you see, that's just more comparing, that's just more conceit. Now, this may seem, this this example may trigger one thing or another for you, but everybody has a version. And our job is not to get rid of comparing mind. This is what, this is part of the human condition to experience the insecurity of either comparing ourselves to others or comparing ourselves to an ideal. I actually brought a few. I mean, this is the slightly tongue-in-cheek, but here's from the comparing the, the insidious way that, especially spiritual ideals, get um, get projected onto our practice. Here's uh, if you can start the day without caffeine or stimulants. If you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains. If you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles. Everybody's idea. If you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it. If you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time. If you can overlook when people take things out on you. When through no fault of yours something goes wrong. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment. If you can face the world without lies and deceit. 
if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without alcohol or drugs, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all these things, then you are probably the family dog. So I debated because I've overread this before in the past. This uh, this next one debated about reading it, but it's just such a funny example of the lengths that we go to to compare ourselves to some kind of uh, standard. This was an internet uh, posting from the year two thousand two. In June, after the British musical group The Planets introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album, representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage, who wrote 4 minutes and 33 seconds, or 273 seconds of silence, which is the name of the piece, threatened to sue the group for ripping Cage off. But failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 seconds it thought had been pilfered. This is it. Said Mike Bat of the Planets, mine is a much better silent piece. I am able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. (laughs) And then, uh, oh, I I don't know if I have it. Uh Oh. Oh, here it is. This is from the the Hasidic Jewish tradition. One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. Then the Seamus, who was the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor, with his elbow pointed out to, pointed to the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> so. So. so the comparing mind is um, insidious. But the beauty of it is, is it comes with being human and it's something we can notice. Uh, but it also, because so much of our identity is built on this kind of measuring and so we live so much in this. There's a lot of torment that comes with not quite measuring up. 
And rather than, uh, rather than meeting those moments of comparing mind with understanding and mercy, that, uh, that an idea of ourself is, you know, we never find anything comparable in real time, really. We only find the comparisons in the idea of ourselves, in the view of ourselves. And the effect of living in that view of ourselves is we're often feeling like we're caught in a little torment of not quite measuring up. And rather than, uh, rather than feel um, kindness for the effect of that and mercy, we often add judgment to it. So, it, so when you do begin to notice that your mind is caught in those comparisons, when you start to be able to say, oh, there's the comparing mind comparing. And know that a comparison cannot really capture, can't, can't re- doesn't really speak to your immediate and direct experience. When you feel the effects of that comparing to at least in some way move in the direction of having your default response be um, kindness. It's okay to, in some way, we can either do it with just basic kindness or just remind yourself, I'm, I am a, an, I'm just an individual, unique expression of life. I'm not comparable to anybody. Isn't that true? In the ultimate sense. I'm not an accident. I'm not supposed to fit some kind of model. Whose model is it anyway? It's mind-made. And as a mind-made model, it's filled with, it's conditioned by all kinds of distortions. Um, So it seems that all of us have been so impacted by that 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 we need a measure of of self-compassion around that. Because really, we, however we show up, up to this point, given all the causes and conditions, it's, it's really, we couldn't be a lot different. I used to have this judge, of, I had one of those spiritual ideals, because I, I did a lot of long, can, a part of the, the privilege that I was a little bit oblivious to. I did many, many three-month periods of silence. And, of course, I, would, I, I was so interested, it didn't matter whether I came out and had to you know, figure out how to, where to live, how to make a living and all that. But somehow, because of how I was raised, it seemed like it was possible to do that, where some people wouldn't, would never even be able to even consider it. So I appreciate that more now. But in the course of being able to do those long retreats, I also had the opportunity to really deconstruct reality, to kind of see moment to moment how it was happening. And I noticed that uh, in these longer practice periods, I would um, often sit in my room and I would do literally solitary periods for, for weeks at a time where I wouldn't go to the meditation hall and, and even food would be brought to the room and they, they, they actually made it a, a formal part of the retreat for people who wanted to do solitary practice. But often I was sitting in this little room and I would be measuring myself based on some ideal that I should be more of a renunciate. Now, when you think of it now, it sounds like a pretty big renunciation to be sitting in my room all. But to me, I wasn't measuring up. And not only that, 
one of the little refrains that was in my mind is that I'm sitting in this room and I have way too much stuff. And I would say to myself, I'm such a greed type. Because I would see my stuff and in, in moments where I, where I um, was really uncomfortable, I would imagine having some, a shirt in different colors. Or, and, but there was this little feeling as, you know, I've got too much stuff. I'm too dependent on my sense, sense comfort. And that I'm not quite measuring to, up to this ideal. But as I stayed longer and longer in this space, in this room, I not only was the world getting more deconstructed, but I was also experiencing a kind of psychological regression. You get younger and younger and more tender because the whole world, you feel like you're a baby because your mind is just so open to, to, to life when you're doing a very long practice period. And there was some point in the span of this, this uh, solitary practice where as a kind of regressed baby, I needed to be held. I needed a hug. And clearly there was nobody there to hug me. So what I did is I rolled off my cushion and onto this, I was sitting on this foam mattress that, you know, that was my meditation uh, zabutan like this. But off to the side, I had a lot of pillows. Too many pillows, in my view. <laughs> but, and I rolled off the cushion uh, onto, the, onto the rest of the mattress, and I wrapped myself in the pillows. And I, nobody there to hug me, so I hugged myself with the pillows. And I started to, you know, just the discharge of being held, even if it was myself, I started to just weep and cry and... and Everything seemed hard and painful, but I began to just discharge and I began to cry. And, <clears throat> and then I looked around. You know, while, while I'm busy with the pillows wrapped around me, I looked around and it was as though in a flash of insight, I had a realization that all that extra stuff that I had judged as less than, as not quite the renunciate, all that stuff was the innocent way that I had tried to hold myself. All, my, all that greed type, all that searching, all that, even all the measuring was the way of trying to soothe myself. And, it, and it, in that moment, there was a kind of a crack. And it was like this, wave, this deep wave of self-compassion came over me. Because I saw the innocence of that method of trying to find relief and how that had built into this impossible ideal and it built into the whole judging of, 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 and measuring and that how, and then it became very clear how everyone is uh, the heir, is the inheritor of the, of the actions that they engage in to, to try to soothe themselves. And when they do that, <clears throat> in ways that actually cause more suffering, it's not, the, it's not your fault. It's just you use the skills that you have at a particular time. But everything that you do, even the things that cause harm to you and other people, there's usually at its heart some urge to find relief. And so in one of the antidotes, and I think that was really a beginning of, of both a... a 
taking the the comparing mind to be less uh, an accurate description, uh, but it, it became the cause of of more understanding that what I said earlier in the day, citing my friend Wes's line that I'm not my fault. Uh, two, it just <clears throat> it opened up a way of understanding uh, identity and our identity, especially with comparisons, with just much more kindness. Um, so I, now I'm not remembering exactly why I told you that story, but <laughs> but nevertheless, it's um, measuring. Yeah. So there, I think I'll just end this before we stretch with a, a quick poem from the poet Rumi. <clears throat> just a portion of the poem where he says this is what we realize when we practice live in the nowhere where you came from even though you have an address here that's the measuring mind you have eyes that see from that nowhere the quiet aware presence that's I'm editorializing you have eyes that see from that nowhere and you have eyes that judge distances how high, how low. You own two shops and you keep running back and forth. Try to notice the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore, where you are the free, the free swimming fish. You're not defined by that measuring mind. Even though you have one, notice it. So we have a few minutes for walking and then we'll have a a final sitting with a little loving kindness and and we'll call it a day. So just maybe a 10 minute stretch inclusive of the um, stretch and a little to and fro walking if you can just to aerate your body a little bit. And uh, try to stay with it. Make it through the birth canal. So, ask a question.
from the Wall Street Journal as you settle in here. Two guys sitting on their zafus, on their, their meditation cushions next to each other. And the quote underneath says, When I was making money, I made the most money. And now that I'm spiritual, I'm the most spiritual. Someone reminded me of a, a very central piece that I wanted to cover today that I, I didn't. I did it by um, uh, implicitly, but not explicitly. And it was the, the way that, that identity view, uh, Sakaya Ditti, view of ourself gets um, gets held hostage um, the sense of ourselves gets held hostage to things not just in uh, in the imagined future the future doesn't isn't always the source of our tension and pain when we're caught up in the identity of going but also in the identity with uh, the past, things that have happened to us in past, present moments. And many, many of us, even here today, would not have even been here if it wasn't for some kind of past uh, traumatic event, uh, loss, pain, Some of what actually became the cause of our search may have been, uh, you know, some pain that then became uh, a cause of, of searching, you know, search for some kind of relief. But sometimes it, it takes uh, it takes some time, which is funny. It takes time to metabolize the things that have happened in the past, and they show themselves in the present moment by certain repeated perceptions of reality. And one of the common identities is that I'm not safe. It's that feeling, I'm not safe. And of course, if I'm not safe here, then that, that past event then gets projected on the imagined future that I'm, I don't feel safe here and I might not feel safe there. But it gives rise in us to that human, that universal human desire to feel safe. Safe with ourselves, safe with others. And one of the ways that we, um, one of the ways that we um, cut through the identity of I'm not, I'm, that I'm defined by what happened to me before is that we, again, we regard ourselves 
we metabolize our those painful feelings with mercy, with self-compassion, with kindness. We learn to metabolize the things that happened in our past so they don't get projected on the future and then have us be hostage to what happened before and what we don't know whether will happen in the future so that we can actually find safety with ourselves in real time. Uh, But one of the ways that we find safety is first feeling the place where we don't feel so safe, where we feel like the past is impinging on our our consciousness. and we try to be, bring, bring that into our mindfulness, bringing that into our awareness. Or to feel whatever the residue is from your past experience. It could be that your past pain made you feel um, like, it, like, you, um, like a body is not a, is not a place where you, can raise, um, where you can rest your attention. And then you could easily start judging yourself as when I talked about being disembodied and how a lot of anxiety is based on being disembodied, you could say that there's something um, wrong with me about that. Rather, instead of turning it into an identity, we try to meet that feeling of being disembodied by just slowly, slowly, sometimes there's so many ways and there's the psychotherapeutic way where you, where you talk about what it is that happened to you. The meditative way is that you slowly start to get used to having a body, being embodied and slowly start to be able to not just think about your feelings because that's one of the effects of having been traumatized as we end spend a lot of time thinking about our feelings and not very good at feeling them. Slowly we learn to metabolize feelings like, oh, feelings, emotions, they're like inner weather. Some stormy, some cloudy, some happy, some sad. And we slowly, slowly get to know that inner world of, of emotional um, affect. And that, of course, that is in the service of, of us being able to be less and less defined by what happened to us. And without throwing out those old identities of having been harmed or marginalized or, or um, treated poorly or whatever it is that happened, mischaracterized, we acknowledge that. We acknowledge the effects of that but we turn it into the milk of the, we churn it into the milk of the Dharma. We turn it into awakening, into compassion. So that you don't have to be dependent on that identity of having been harmed or hurt. So easy to talk about it, but our practice is to actually feel it. The way out is in. That's the key. So maybe the beginning of our practice will be to experience our bodies in a slightly different way. First, just to know that all of us have been impacted by our past experiences. Every single one of us. 
And yet we have endured and here we are. So everything that ever happened brought us to this, this moment. And we find our bodies affect, having been affected. We want to just appreciate that it's this body that carried us to this moment. That it's, it's such a barometer for the effects of others and our own actions. And so we try to meet our body with kindness, bringing kind attention to our head with its hair and its scalp and the bones of the skull. We glide our attention along the contours of our face, our forehead and eyes and eye sockets and cheeks. Gently gliding our attention along the contours of our body. uh, Letting it feel like a caress of kindness. Kind attention to our front of our face and the back of our skull. Caressing our neck and our shoulders. Sensing the skin and the muscles the bones of the shoulders with kind attention. Letting that caress of loving kindness cascade down our arms, biceps and elbows, forearms and wrists, hands to the tips of the fingers, Sensing lovingly the skin and the flesh and the muscles and the bones of the arms. Caressing the back body. Gliding along the upper back torso, the lower back torso. Sensing the slope of the back, the skin, the muscles, the bones of the back. each movement of our attention along the contours of our back like a caress of kindness. Kind attention to the front of our torso, the front body, caressing the heart area, the solar plexus, the belly, pelvic area, skin, flesh, muscles, bones, organs. Gliding gently back again to the rear end area, the tush, the butt, and the sits bones, just lovingly appreciating the support of our rear on the cushion or chair. And gliding gently along the thighs and knees, shins and calves, ankles and feet to the tips of the toes. Sensing the skin, flesh, muscles, bones of the legs that carry us. Until our whole body is enveloped in that field of loving attention.
And then sensing our, that without this individual body, there would be no understanding, even no identity. We never deny our individuality. This body has supported us. And our mind, our thinking mind, our senses. We feel the whole thing and we, we drop into that field of loving kindness. The wishes, those deep wishes that we have for ourselves that we all share. And this is a way of gladdening and softening our hearts when they are so hardened by our mistaken identities our measurements and judgments. We drop into that field of loving attention, words that express the wish to be happy. May I be happy. Know the highest happiness, which is peace. May I be happy and peaceful. May I feel safe with myself, with my individuality. May I feel safe with others, safe from inner harm, safe from outer harm. Knowing the vulnerability of identity with our body, we still wish for ourselves to feel healthy and strong. But with wise understanding, more, maybe more importantly, we wish that we can meet our limitations and our vulnerabilities with grace and acceptance. Wishing for ourselves ease knowing that there may be times that aren't easy and wishing a sense of well-being, the kind of well-being that doesn't depend on circumstances. May I be happy and peaceful, safe, healthy, easeful and well. I have acceptance of myself just the way I am and all my parts, all that has made me into this unique individual, knowing that all the parts are made up of non-personal, non-self elements, earth, air, fire, water, circumstances, family, culture, politics. May I accept myself just as I am. May my heart be touched by mercy, kindness, 
only wise response to our vulnerability as humans and the fragility of identity is kindness. So you f- feel free to continue dropping in words, feelings of friendliness and kindness toward this mind-body process. Or feel free to just connect again with the body's breathing. And just as the Buddha did sitting under the Bodhi tree, experience the selflessness of the body. This body is not self. It's a changing condition. Breathing happens by itself. Sensations come and go by themselves. Moods come and go by themselves. Thoughts and images come by themselves. Thoughts arise without a thinker. Moods arise without a feeler. Sensations arise unbidden. Everything is marked by three characteristics. Changing. And whatever is changing cannot live, cannot give lasting satisfaction. Whatever is changing cannot define me and mine, is not myself, is marked by not-self. This is the understanding of the selflessness, this human mind and body. Rest in the awareness, the knowing, changing conditions of body, mood, and mind. Rest your weary mind. Be aware. Clinging to nothing as myself. Be free.
May we all see through the illusion of a separate individuality. See through the identity view. May we all come to love, be kind to the house that ego built. house builder you've been seen and understood and may our practice today and every day and any of the fruits of our practice today any of the benefits any of the goodness that's come from our practice may it be continually dedicated to the welfare and benefit of of all. May all beings be touched by loving kindness, self-acceptance, and wisdom. Now I want to keep sitting, but our day is done. So uh, thanks so much for being here and your practice. And and uh, maybe forget everything you heard and just <laughs> be present. <laughs> That's the best way to love ourselves, <laughs> is to not forget what's actually happening. Again, thank you for your practice. And oh, a few shameless self-promoting thoughts. Uh, one, some of you know this already, but I have a, a group that uh, I lead every Tuesday in San Francisco. Now, almost 35 years, so every Tuesday, whether I'm there or not, uh, there is a group offered. Um, so we'll sit for 40 to 45 minutes, then there's usually a Q&A or a talk or discussion and a little break. And that's at a church in San Francisco every Tuesday night at 7. And you can go to missiondharma.org and there may even be a link on the Spirit Rock website on my teacher page. Um, And uh, although it's sometimes challenging to find space, I also um, can from time to time um, support people's practice and do offer mentoring and individual instruction sometimes. So the Mission Dharma site also has a little link on there for uh, interviews and mentoring. And let's see if there's anything else. Oh, my book. For those of you who haven't gotten to peruse it, it's, um, it's a, I, for me it was a, 
I was kind of a, initially a reluctant author, but uh, the editor kind of urged me to write it, and she wanted to appeal to what she called the consumer <laughs> who doesn't know anything about meditation, uh, make it uh, jargon-free and accessible. And it, and I think I, I think it is that, and it's a, it's a, a pointer to the very things that we pointed to all day today. But it turns out that over the years, it's been out for three years now, over the years, the, the people who have practiced a lot are the ones that I hear from the most, that it puts them back in touch with what they experience on retreats. And uh, the same, you know, for beginners or for any level of experience. And it is jargon-free, so it's, it's been a nice bridge for f- people who have family members who may not understand what your interest is and who uh, it will help them not think that you've gone off the deep end because you're interested in this kind of meditation. And so thanks in advance for any support of the book. You know, it's, um, once I started writing it, and uh, it was totally fun. And, and so hopefully that comes through a little bit in the book. And, and I hope to see you somewhere on the, on the Dharma Trail. And I guess it, there's five minutes for you to... Do your signing off if you're a CE credit person and the rest of you can either just sit quietly or um, walk and enjoy the property. It's very rare and to be in such a beautiful place, so enjoy. So thanks again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate